0: Sailor And I am what I am, what I am, and I am what I am, and that's all that I am, cause I am what I am. Uh you got it? I think so, yeah. And i Trust You're only, baby. You're a baby. It says here, right there, right. Robin Williams, <laughs> <laughs> Shirley duval You're
3: in Popeye.
4: For Christmas from Paramount
0: said
3: Foy, and I
5: mean <laughs> Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Father Malone. Thanks for having me back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Paul Zimmerman.
1: Well, blow me down.
5: On this episode, we are looking at the 1980 film from director Robert Altman and writer Jules Pfeiffer, Popeye. Based on the King Syndicate series by E.C. Seeger, it's the story of a mariner, played by Robin Williams, who comes to the port town of Sweethaven looking for his father. He finds a town under the control of a mysterious man known only as the Commodore, who has left his right-hand man, Bluto, played by Paul L. Smith, in charge of the city, which is plagued with ruffians and an overzealous tax collector. He meets the oil family, a dysfunctional group, group whom he must redeem in order to find his father and true happiness. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Popeye, then please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Paul, I imagine that, like me, you may have been of the age to have seen this one in the movie theater.
1: I am indeed, and it is the, was it was back then, we would always go opening weekend. So, I was into Altman since M.A.S.H., And, you know, he had that run from 70 to 75 that cannot be beat. Let's repeat it, please. MASH, Brewster McLeod, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images, The Long Goodbye, Thieves Like Us, California Split, and Nashville. So seven films in five years. Fantastic. Then he had a rough spot. Buffalo Bill and the Indians, Three Women, uh, Wedding, Quintet, A Perfect Couple. And then while they were shooting, Popeye Health came out. And all of those did poorly. Um, There's actually some good ones in there, like... uh, Most of Three Women and most of Buffalo Bill and the Indians, uh, Quintet is a dreadful. Oh, boy. Yeah, with Paul Newman. Supposedly, if you even mentioned the title around Paul, he would fly into a rage. (laughs) I saw it opening weekend, and I didn't know what to expect. I mean, when I'd heard Nashville was going to be a musical, I didn't know what to expect from Altman for that. And this was equally bizarre, um, actually more bizarre. But I was struck seeing it again, how it's kind of um, some of the structure is actually like, Exactly like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where you have this very defined area. And the whole village building that he's done in films, I think, is unparalleled. You know, you totally picture where the city begins and ends. And the thing that's in common with McCabe and Mrs. Miller is this group of eccentrics are there, but somebody coming in disrupts it all. And at the end, there's a big fight of sorts, not the traditional ones you get in the Hollywood films. So that's how I saw it the first time.
4: And Mike, how about yourself? Yeah, I saw it the week it came out. I was, uh, this is 1980, correct? Yes. So I was seven years old. And uh, not to uh, become too sentimental or modern, but I believe this is actually the last film my father took me to. And I had already been, my father was in the Navy, so I wore his hat. Popeye was my favorite character. Uh, Saturday morning cartoons and just sort of after school. So I was completely stoked. And Mork from Ork was playing Popeye. I could not, my seven-year-old brain could barely contain itself. and I adored the movie uh, beginning and as soon as I got home, I bought the soundtrack, which I listened to ad nauseum until the, 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 the grooves wore out. And uh, and then I haven't watched it basically in 30 some odd years, you know, 35 odd years. This was fun to re-experience it. I don't unabashedly adore it the way my my seven year old self did, but uh, I do think there's a lot to recommend it.
5: I saw this when I was seven, just about to be eight, I guess it was. I saw it for Pat Gilhul's birthday party. Pat was born in March, I want to say the 23rd, so I would have seen it right around then. So it had a long theatrical life. Whenever I bring up the movie Popeye, my wife always talks about how it was always the second bill on a double feature, that the studios were desperate to get more people to see Popeye, so they would just throw it on every single double bill that they possibly could at drive-ins, movie theaters. She talked about how many times she remembers driving off while the beginning of Popeye was playing. (laughs) I have to say, I wasn't that big of a fan of it when I saw it at eight years old, seven years old, but it was one of those movies that played on cable a lot, and I definitely saw it a lot while it was on, and then it has fond memories. Like When I think back to this film, I remember it very fondly. It's kind of a flawed film, but I think the flaws are what makes it interesting, Yeah, to your point, Paul, I love that it is an Altman film, and it is an Altman film through and through, even if you are looking at this character from, what, 1929, I think is when Popeye first showed up, and you get that kind of depression era inside of this movie. It's a 70s movie disguised as a 1980 film, right? It's just one of those that's on that cusp And the 1970s, man, they were just really digging on a lot of depression stuff. I think it was because of inflation and all these things that were going on. But you had movies like Boxcar Bertha and Bound for Glory and Emperor of the North. They shoot horses, don't they? I mean, there were just so many depression films. And this kind of fits right in there. And it kind of fits in. I can't remember when Pennies from Heaven came out, but it was kind of that same thing, too, with Turnies from Heaven was released in 1981. This nostalgia plus also dread about the past mixed with the musical stuff. And I have to say, it wasn't too much of a stretch for me knowing that this was a musical, just because I remember the songs from Popeye more than anything, like Clean-Shaven Man... Barnacle Bill the Sailor. Who's that guy that won your heart?
0: It's Barnacle Bill the Sailor. Who's the guy that
5: thinks he's smart? It's
3: Barnacle Bill the
5: Sailor. There were so many songs that would get stuck in my head from Popeye. It kind of felt like a natural, oh, of course it's going to be a musical.
1: Yeah, they talk of it as like an unmusical musical that, you know, they had all these gymnasts brought in to train them and how to dance and all this. And then Altman said, well, I don't want you to see any dance steps. So it was like, okay. So whatever, Expect I know Pfeiffer was all upset because he's like, I'm afraid Altman might, you know, change the script. Said, Why? Have you seen any of his films? <laughs> you, know, you have a good reason to be afraid.
5: Yeah. We talked on the flash Gordon episode that there was a, a, a Renaissance, you know, people complain these days. Oh, there's all these comic book movies, yada, yada, yada. Well, in this era of filmmaking, it was comic strip movies. And, This movie was uh, actually, it owes its life to a comic strip that was another musical, which was Annie. And that was playing Broadway uh, at the time, I want to say 77, 78. Producer Robert Evans saw that, said, hey, I want to do this myself. They got into a little bit of a bidding war about making Annie the movie. Lost that bidding war and he said, well, you know what? I still want to do this. And he ended up, I think he was the one that contacted Pfeiffer and said, I want to do Popeye, the movie. And Pfeiffer's like, and, and I don't know if I necessarily believe this because I, the, the famous line from Pfeiffer is, I will only do it if I can do the EC Seeger version of Popeye, which it's pretty close to that, but things like Spinach and Bluto were actually more the King Syndicate feature stuff. Like, Bluto and Spinach had made an appearance in the comics, but those really became part and parcel of Popeye because of the cartoons. So it's like, all right, I take I take a lot of stuff that everybody says about this movie with a very large amount of salt, to the point where my doctors advised me to not do any more research on this film. Jules Pfeiffer has been
4: beating that drum for a while. The I'm, you know, I'm only going to base it on the original strip. And to your point, like, remember when uh, the Adams family film came out Caroline Thompson, uh, she kept saying the same thing. Like this is not based on that television series. It's based on the original charles adams drawings it's like those characters didn't have names or actual relationships like your thing is entirely based on that so yeah yeah. i mean right bluto and spinach you know minor characters in fact popeye was a minor character on that strip and the the thimble theater uh originals like he was like the the, the third or fourth lead and he just happened to become the most popular one so why was it the whole thing about Castor Oil, right?
5: <laughs> That's who the original series was. Well yeah. I think it was what, Harold Ham Gravy was one of the main guys. He eventually got usurped by Popeye, who because Popeye was just kind of like a side character. They brought him in for one adventure. Thimble Theater was one of the first serialized comic strips, so you would actually follow along the series, you know, kind of like uh the labner and some of these and they brought in Popeye. They were going to this island to find this, I think it was a magical bird or something. He was their guide. Eventually, the adventure is over. Popeye goes away. But the fans were just like, hey, we love this Popeye guy. And eventually, they're like, yeah, get rid of ham gravy. We don't need this guy anymore. Bring him Popeye.
1: He's like the Fonzie of the comic strip. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He character takes over.
5: He's got the orphan, too. It's, he's got his own chachi.
1: One of the things I just say is the best thing about it is it looks, sounds, everything, unlike anything else. It's not even a really easy character for the theater audience to get into. There's no normal person walking around. The lead is, you know, got the squinky eye. And it's funny to think of what they wanted to do originally. You know, it was Hal Ashby, Dustin Hoffman, uh, Lily Tomlin. And then that fell apart. And I mean, what? al ashby have done with a musical i don't know it's i I love al ashby but you got to consider too the time was these things weren't taken very seriously before i mean superman's probably the first superhero to be taken seriously and it's only because you threw enough money at it that you get people like brando and hackman but without that these were always looked down on so to have a a budget this big with a a producer by robert evans it's like crazy
5: yeah and superman they had their musical version from TV from what 75. It's a, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. So this whole idea of like this being, uh, another musical was just like, yeah, no, that's kind of natural. I think it was, and I've read conflicting reports on this, but I think it was Altman that picked Nilsson. Again, there were a bunch of other singer songwriters that he was looking at. And of course, everybody's throwing out all these names, Paul Simon, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, all of this. But I think Nilsson fits with this so well because Nilsson is just so close to being the center, but then he always takes a weird left turn. And that always feels like Altman to me as well, where it feels like you might be going down one path, but you can never anticipate that there's going to be something that jerks you out of your seat and says, hey, this is a movie. This is something different than what you're used to. To your point, Paul, I mean, this movie looks amazing. And that set, the Sweet Haven set, is one of the stars of the show. It just looks wonderful.
1: Yeah, apparently it's still there, and you can go visit it. And there's like a swim area next to it. And I guess there were some fears when they started that it was going to look too German expressionistic stuff, like too dark for that sort of thing. But have you read this one too, the jumping off the cliff about Altman? Because this had... Lots of gossip about um, that production because there is—it's a you know—it's one of the Coke movies of the time, along with you know Blues Brothers in 1941 and so on. When I interviewed Robert Altman for Vincent and Theo, I asked him about that, and he just dismissed it, saying that the author Patrick McGilligan—that guy was just drunk all the time on set. I don't know what he's talking about, so he dismissed it with one line. But I wanted to mention Altman was always famous for his family of filmmakers. And he would do that thing where after each day of shooting, they'd all gather, get drunk, get high, always suppose they had really good food, and they'd become this bonding thing. And apparently when they made this film, Altman was actually, they referred to him as the of Gibraltar because he wasn't drunk and high for once. It was kind of everybody around him was. And I know uh, Robin Williams was having a problem with his wife, and he was having a problem with Blow that became you know, very famous a few years later. But this was the Altman film where he didn't party so much.
5: Yeah, which is very fascinating. And I asked Alan Nichols, you'll hear from later, were there any drug problems on set? And he was just like, yeah, Bob liked to get high on weed, but that's it. Because there are cocaine stories that go around with this one. This whole idea of Robert Evans lost a piece of luggage on the way, and he ended up, according to, again, the legend, he ended up calling Henry Kissinger and having Kissinger somehow work his magic to get his bags and what's in his bags, 35 pounds of cocaine to the, like so much cocaine that Robin Williams is like, what's he going to do? Blow a rail from here to New York city. You
1: know, uh, Kissinger was his date for the Godfather, Robert Evans, that he was really proud of that. I don't
4: know. Something tells me that entire suitcase was consumed during the course of production. I'm just, you know, I mean, it makes one huge rail, but come on.
5: Sweet Hayden is one of the stars of the show, but really the people, the townspeople, so many people that don't even get a line, you know, but they are part and parcel of this film and just make this, they are as rich of a background as the set is, and the set is so expansive. And yeah, they just are so wonderful and just bring such a tapestry to this movie Endlessly fascinating to watch if you just watch the background players because they're always moving, always doing gags, just to to have so many circus people in this, and especially Bill Irwin, who is just such a hero. He actually plays Ham Gravy, and it took me forever to realize that he was Olive's former fiance. Before Bluto ended up in the picture. So he's kind of like third wheel to, or fourth wheel, I suppose, to this whole Bluto, Popeye, olive oil triangle. And then he got ham gravy still, like, uh, oh, I'd like some, some leftovers if you got anything. To Pfeiffer's credit, he, all
4: of those background characters are characters from the original strip. And we don't have time to spend giving them much of anything. But Altman, he cast it with, actors who are in perf- to performers really who bring such dynamism to the background that it's like you said, I remember watching it as a kid and just feeling like this is like a comic strip because that's what you do. Like there are things in the background and the foreground to keep your attention. And uh, yeah, it's just m- marvelous. The cast, I will say I'm not the biggest fan of Bluto in this film, Paul L Smith. I mean, I love the beast of a Sure. But when you have characters with zero dialogue in the background who pop and I still remember to this day, uh, do you apologize? That one guy, one line is more stuck in my brain than than Paul Smith. So other than that, I yeah, the casting is just fantastic.
1: I assume his part was dubbed, right?
5: It sure feels like it. But I saw a lot of pictures of him in the recording studio. And I'm like, it doesn't sound like his voice when he's speaking. And it doesn't sound like his voice when he's singing.
4: But. It sounds like they did a bunch of ADR and it's him doing it, but it still doesn't seem right.
1: I still think of him as wandering in from Midnight Express and he's so, you know, nefarious. It's like, ah, this guy's scaring this family movie.
5: I almost think that Peter Bray, who plays Oxblood Oxheart, maybe might have made a better Bluto just cause he was a monster. The guy was so big. <laughs> It's just amazing, and I'm like, he kind of has a little bit more charisma. I also love the Beast Rubin. I love everything that I've ever seen Paul L. Smith in, but I kind of agree with you, though he's got some presence. I love those moments when he's just intimidating people, and people are doing bodily harm to themselves in order to not be hurt by Bluto, which is a, a pretty neat trick if you can do it, I suppose.
4: Yeah, the Donovan Scott's reaction with the, she won't marry you. Like, when he redirects it, like, oh, my God, I,
5: <laughs> I dodged that bullet. I mentioned uh, Bill Irwin, and I just kind of want to bang the drum a little bit more for him. He was one of these faces that I just saw all the time growing up. I first recognized him in this. His whole gag of trying to retrieve his hat and then kicking it down the street I love that whole bit that he does when he shrinks into himself and like Pluto crushes him. Love that as well. There are just so many good moments with him. It's like, I would see him just kind of show up here and there little bit parts and stuff. And then that fucking Bobby McFerrin video comes out and it's just McFerrin, Bill Irwin and Robin Williams the whole way through. And I'm like, Okay, I guess he and Robin Williams became friends on set.
1: It's pretty perfect casting beside I mean, Paul Dooley is going to be really spot on. And uh, I love Ray Walston is uh, Popeye's dad. I think their scenes together are really good because you got kind of an up-and-coming comic, and you've got a comic that's been around for a long time.
5: Both playing aliens on television.
1: They have that in common, too. They must have had some interesting conversations late at night. rails. <laughs> <laughs>
5: What do you Robin Williams never did cocaine Did he It's even in his
1: live act Lies, Right God's way of saying You make too much money He does an entire Stand up once Where he's just sweating For the whole thing
4: Look in the hole There might be a snake Look in the hole You can't play cocaine And play golf It Was an no, old Robin Williams joke
1: <laughs> We're talking about How
0: cocaine basically affects you There's also something Called freebasing It's not free It costs you your house It should be called homebasing <laughs> Here's a little warning sign If you have a cocaine problem First of all, if you come home to your house, you have no furniture, and your cat's going, I'm out of here, prick. Warning. <laughs> Number two, if you have this dream where you're doing cocaine in your sleep, and you can't fall asleep, and you're doing cocaine in your sleep, and you can't fall asleep, and you wake up and you're doing cocaine, bingo.
5: <laughs> Number three, if on your tax form it says $50,000 for snacks,
0: mayday.
5: <laughs> I know a lot of people complained about Robin Williams' ADR and that they couldn't understand them, but I'm, again, I'm like, Didn't you guys ever watch the cartoon? I mean, that's how Popeye spoke. That whole like eternal dialogue that he's doing, just commenting on the world the whole time, just with those little asides under his breath. I'm like, that is Popeye, and you can't make out everything that Popeye ever said. I thought Robin Williams was making it way more intelligible, actually. Like, I think he slowed it down and
4: made it palatable for the audience. Go back and watch the cartoons. You don't know half of what he's saying. Sometimes you're like, wait,
1: what? Well, there's a connection there, too. I once saw uh, Billy Gould speak in the 70s, and they were talking about how he mumbled so much in uh, Long Goodbye, under his breath and that sort of thing. And he said, well, didn't you ever see the Fleischer Popeye cartoons? Seven years later, we've got Popeye, and he's doing it again. So we should talk a little about Altman's speaking, his uh, overlapping dialogue and all that. Cause that's that was his thing when he did the eight track sound the first time, I don't remember which film it was for. It might've been Nashville, but he loved to have the natural thing of everybody speaking over each other's lines. Much like we're doing now. I always wondered why his films are so unique. And he always said casting was like 80% of his job. So once he picked them out and then they said on Popeye, he made a point of talking to every character actor that they needed their own backstory and they needed, you know, everything to the point of distraction that the leads weren't being talked to. But finally, if you've ever seen, there's a short, a short about the making of shortcuts and you see how he does it. And what he does is he gets everybody pumped up, then he uses multiple cameras, multiple zooms. So, you know, traditional film is always, you know, master shot, mid shot, close up. He's not doing that. So you never know where he he's looking at the time. So you'll see people, I think that's why he gets such better performances out of some people than they usually give in other films. Because they're trying harder and they're not trying to, you know, save it for the close-up. They're trying to give it all. So he then picks, when he goes back, which shots he wants. And he's got the eight-track sound. He can slide one lever up and cut somebody else. And, you know, you can do that. So that's the secret to him. And that's also the thing that bugs the shit out of people about him, too. You know, they're all talking to the, I mean, when McCabe came out, people were like, you can't understand it. They're all talking at the same time. And that's, that became his thing.
5: It's funny that you're saying that about the way he talks to the background actors. I think there was actually a lot of hurt feelings during MASH. Gould and Sutherland were ready to walk off the picture at one point and they were calling the studio, like Alman doesn't know what he's doing, yada, yada, which is just hilarious when you realize you know how that shot them both to stardom but they were so angry about the way he was making the movie that they uh i want to say yeah it, it was one of these it, like coal oil you owe me an apology kind of thing all these years later like that's why gould wasn't in anything until either long goodbye or california split i can't remember which one came first but there was that long period of time where they didn't work together and I don't think he ever came to terms with Sutherland because, yeah, Sutherland was still bent out of shape.
4: To be fair, nobody else was working that way. You know, like what else would their reaction
1: be? Like, what is happening? Yeah, the whole look of MASH too, was so different at the time. You know, like you're not even focusing on the main people and they're all talking at the same time and it's plotless and blah, blah. Yeah, it must have been quite a shock.
5: There was that story, too, where, uh, Altman went around to all of the extras and he played a game called pick a tick. So each one had to have their own personal tick that they would do like the oil family. You know, you already mentioned Donovan Scott, who I think is really just an undersung hero, especially of this film. He's done so many great things, but it's like, I don't know if people would recognize him in the grocery store, Roberta Maxwell as Nana oil, McIntyre Dixon as cool oil. I mean, McIntyre Dixon, and you'll hear him later in the show, I kind of poked fun at him a little bit about his dialogue, because I was like, how did you remember all that dialogue you had? Because he just has pretty much one line most of the time, and I just love how it makes him seem completely out of touch with everything, and just so entitled. I mean, you're right, all of these characters are just wonderfully quirky. I remember watching the movie and uh, Coal Oil in particular demanding an apology, just thinking about certain
4: family members of mine and going, oh, my God, this is spot on. <laughs> it, it, later in the film, you know, when they when they finally pull down the newspaper and we see Coal Oil is crying. Oh, my God, it's hard. Heartbra- it was heartbreaking. Then it's heartbreaking. Now, geez, it's like the rock of the family is broken.
5: When I was doing my research on this. I kept running across Nana oil was not Nana oil in like up until the last draft of the script. I don't know why they changed it, but she was always men or mineral oil. And it just feels like, why did you miss that joke? You know, all of these other people have their funny names, but then Nana just doesn't fit for me.
1: Did you end up going to the Altman archives in Ann Arbor?
5: I finally did. Yeah. I didn't realize that there are new policies in place because of covid so it used to be one form you'd say hey take out these boxes from the archives please have them ready for me on this day at this time and then i went to check on it and they said oh yeah no there's a second form the first one is you pull the boxes the second one is you request the appointment and i found that out like three days before my appointment so of course they're like yeah no we're booked up this week I ended up doing it Monday, so just two days ago uh, from this recording. It was great to see just some of the stuff that was in there. There were three versions of the script, so I read through. Uh, I only had the first draft before, so I read through a lot of the second and the third draft. And my God, it went from the first draft was 156 pages. The second draft was 142 pages, and the third draft the shooting scripts are, was actually 147 pages. And I'm just like, what are you doing? <laughs> and they <laughs> didn't even have the song lyrics written in there. So it would just be like, it wouldn't even say like he sings. I mean, it was very, very vague as far as where the songs were. I was specifically looking for Wimpy's song that ended up getting cut. And I'm just looking, looking, looking. And every once in a while, it'd be like, Papa the sailor man song and that's it it wouldn't even have the lyrics so 147 pages it's pretty jam-packed and i'm not surprised that there's the stories of how they made altman wrap it up before he was done uh shooting i didn't read anything about that in the archives but that seems to be the thing now as people say that and the end of the movie we'll we'll get there but I can see where maybe the end wasn't completely finished.
1: The short version was they ran out of money,
5: right?
4: Yeah. Goddamn mechanical octopus. That's the problem.
5: <laughs> yeah. Ed Wood will tell you that.
4: Dark, <laughs> the octopus? Oh, my God. Ed Wood, indeed. I can't wait to talk about that.
0: Somebody misplaced the octopus motor. So when you get in there and fight with him, shake his
6: legs around. It looks like he's killing you.
5: Going back to that idea of the Depression, I mean, this whole town, the whole thing is just this weird economic model of, taxation and having donald Moffat, another amazing character actor having him going around collecting these ridiculous taxes for someone who isn't even seen this unseen power who's left this brute in charge i'm just like there's a lot of stuff going on just with that idea of the power structure here
1: yeah supposed to be the only honest man in town kind of you know that these puppies surrounded by all these people that are flawed for one reason or another
4: I just love that the town of Sweetheaven has has their own national anthem, leading to questions of, are they own their own principality off of the coast of America? Or <laughs> now, Jules Pfeiffer created Sweetheaven, right? But the town did not have a name prior. Not in the comics, not in the... In, in the, the, the cartoons, he didn't really have a base of operations at all. It's just adventures wherever. But evidently, it's supposed to be on the California coast, which... It, everyone you know describes it as a sleepy new england town but i, I believe it's supposed to be out in california because in the original strips popeye is a member of the santa monica rod and real association right there i love that opening song with just just how dour everyone is and like what an introduction especially for children because this is kind of a kids movie all the adults have been reveling in the depression for the past decade. Like, here's one for you guys. <laughs> this and Bugsy Malone should uh, should uh, <laughs> make you a uh, fear of the future.
1: I vaguely remember when it first came out because I was what, in my 20s. I don't know. I was, wasn't was a kid. And I vaguely remember the adults sitting there watching their children who clearly loved it. And the parents all had what the fuck expressions on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my idea of a kid's
5: movie. It is so much the story of this town. I'd love to, you know, we mentioned, um, I think, Paul, you talked about how it was very much this uh, German expressionistic type of town. Even you can paint it in bright colors, which they've done. You know, you talked about how you can go and see the place. You can actually go to Google Maps and see the town and do like a little walking tour. So it's really kind of cool. You get to see all the pictures that other people have taken of the city and everything. It's much brighter now than it is in the movie. It's pretty wood is it just colored. Bleached? Yeah, it, it's yeah. just kind of from the sun and the weather and the ocean. Oh yeah, I mean they definitely repaint the the Popeye town quite often. I mean it looks oh,
4: oh, okay. I, I it, so there the, it, there is upkeep going on. It's not just oh, the dilapidated. Yeah
5: no no you can pay money and go in and see the town yeah it, it looks better now than it did in the movie just because the movie looks more windswept and all this kind of stuff ramshackle right and my god the number of like angles and stuff there's always masts and poles and always things breaking up that frame so it looks incredibly busy and just this town is a living breathing entity
4: it allows him to just sort of throw the camera in any direction, right? Like, and you're going to get a beautiful comic book frame. Uh, that, yeah, because the expressionism of the town itself, it really is what one would consider like a, a, a seaport town, like, but in a dream, but completely believable, like down to the even as outlandish as the costumes are, I'm thinking of the shoes, particularly of uh, of olive oil shoes, like I never for once don't believe that that's her clothing and she lives in that town.
1: You know, seeing it again, it was so nice to see her so happy because I believe she was coming right off the ordeal in The shiny.
4: Ah, I was wondering when The Order was with those two.
1: They kind of broke her in many ways. To see her so kind of giddy again in the Altman family. So that was kind of nice.
4: You know, everyone has always said, like, she's the perfect casting in the movie. She really is. But her, her reaction to that was like, you know how would you feel that you're the perfectly cast person for olive oil? Like, and I, and people and people called her that like her whole life when she was a kid. They used to make fun of her and call her olive oil. Now she is olive oil forever.
1: Yeah. Well, besides the shoes, all they did was her hair. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what else did you need? No appliances on her.
5: But I think she looks amazing, and to see some of those behind the scene photos from the Altman archives where she's. Just like in regular, plain old street clothes, and it's just very, very hip. She was a hip, a hip, hip lady.
1: And a side note: um, sweepy is played by Robert Altman's grandson. Apparently, had some sort of an ailment that made he didn't have a stroke, but he had a oh, little
5: Bell's palsy.
1: So it kind of like it played to the part, and he's quite good.
5: Got kids, great. <laughs> Altman was, I think he was a prouder grandfather than he would probably wanted to admit because my God, like there were so much of the material from those archives is pictures of Sweet Pea just in front of the camera, behind the camera. Like there's a whole folder of press clippings just about the kid. It was, I was like, wow. Okay. Like to the point where I'm like, okay, let me get past this material. <laughs> the other thing that was. That took up a lot of space in those boxes was um there was a newspaper. Well, there was a flyer, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper flyer. I think both sides, every single day, somebody on the crew did. And so what was it called? It was called uh the Falconer and <laughs> kind of, yeah, for Maltese. And I was looking through these and they were very, very creative. It was all just cutouts from newspapers and magazines and, and just like funny headlines or juxtapositions of things and very, very creative. And it was thick. Like every single day somebody was doing this and whoever it was, was signing the name thrush. And I don't know if that's a nickname for Shelley Duvall or not, because then I read in an an article Oh, and Shelley Duvall was doing a newspaper every day on set. And I'm like, wow, okay. I thought it was Catherine Altman for some reason, but maybe it was Shelley Duvall. And if so, she's got quite a talent.
4: Leading actress and newspaper editor simultaneously. (laughs) Jesus Christ. And you know what's funny about that, Mike, is uh, when I think about her performance, like how brassy and sort of like, you know, uh, like propulsive she is, like, the two years prior, you know, we had Superman and we got Lois Lane and I, not knocking Margot Kidder's performance, which I adore. But when I think about Lois Lane, like I kind of think of the way that Shelly Duvall was playing Olive Oil. So um, <laughs> it just made more
5: sense to me for that kind of a character. So what did you guys think of the songs themselves?
1: It caught a lot of crap at the time, but it reminded me of when Nashville came out. I remember Rolling Stone and Cream and everybody just totally trashed it. They were kind of catchy, actually, and it kind of grew on you. And I know the traditional country and western stars all hated it, too. So I wasn't expecting super catchy stuff, but I do like Harry Nielsen a lot. And the score grew on me. It's not your traditional everything's hummable immediately, but it grows on you because he was great, even though he reportedly left the island after about halfway through the or the shoot, too he was another one that was having problems with the production and he had rewritten some songs right on the island itself but then he quit but overall i like it
4: this movie and simultaneously watching reruns of the monkeys like really subliminally made me appreciate skilled songwriting because harry nelson obviously contributed to both
5: to me they're more humble than others some of them will get stuck in my head for whatever reason the i am what i am song just didn't do it for me whereas things like food 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 this one is one that you can sing you know from memory but it's like half and half for me and i don't know if it's like one side of the album versus the other but every other song it feels like and i do like the lullaby for sweet pea where it's the whole sail with me versus stay with me and the way that they're both singing what they want popeye and olive i really like the way that that song puts is put together I love the song Blow Me Down, as evocative as any of the comics,
4: as evocative as the script of what Popeye as a, as a cartoon was supposed to be. Like, and that sort of internal monologue that we, it's, it's almost like a window into the mumble for a couple of minutes while giving us a real introduction to the town. Like, you know, we get the Sweet Haven thing from their perspective, but really we're coming in like Popeye. So to me, that song works like across the board for a musical and then you can listen to it sort of separately. So
1: Yeah, like like Pappy's I like a lot. Is kind of like, you know, the introduction to what he's like. But then the wormhole stuff sticks with you like any large <laughs> olive oil. <laughs> so the lyrics are pretty witty too for
5: those. Olive songs are probably the best songs. Of course the hit, thanks I guess to Paul Thomas Anderson, uh being He Needs Me. I mean that is one damn great song.
4: Just right to the point, right? Minimal but never repetitive, I thought, like that that particular song. It is as sweet as it uh, uh, uh,
1: pretends to be. Well, they didn't call it unmusical musical for nothing, right? Nothing played by the rules.
5: Well, and that whole thing, too, that they would record them while they were on set. But then I did see a lot of the stars in the recording studio that they had set up on Malta, which was no joke. It was really well put together. I think we
4: should take a projection booth field trip to Malta. Uh,
5: I would, I
1: would go. I would go.
4: Let's uh, let's go do that. <laughs> Google Maps is not enough. We really need to soak up the atmosphere.
5: I'll call Andrew Leavold. He books movie trips. <laughs> Did you guys get a chance to listen to? There's the extended soundtrack that has the demo versions of stuff. Did you get a chance to check that out? That what Nielsen singing them?
4: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's always fascinating to hear the author's actual intention versus what we get. And uh, it's instructive, I guess, uh, in a way, seeing from where it goes. And it's also interesting. I didn't know that he had left the production. That's also interesting. I'm I'm wondering what impact that had sort of uh, going forward, how locked they were uh, by then. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I didn't hear specifically what broke him, but just that at some point he just gave it up and went home.
4: Maybe he just wanted to go home. It sounds like being trapped on Malta for a year with a bunch of coke kids might not be the best thing. Although given that environment, this movie could have been a unmitigated disaster. And the the, the fact that you, what you said, like about how, uh, you know, Robert Altman, like kept it together for this production, like it shows like it doesn't feel like that. I needed to be told this was a, a an insanity uh, uh, level for production behind the scenes. Um, it doesn't feel that way. It, it feels sort of sweet and genuine. Like, there doesn't seem to be any
1: coke fueled menace in, in, in any scene. Not like, say, going south. You've seen that, right? <laughs> right! No!
5: <laughs> There's a little bit of writing in this, uh, on this in uh, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, and it just feels like they're trying to lump this in with the excesses of, like, Heaven's Gate or something. And I'm just like, it wasn't... I mean, it was 20... Million dollars was the budget. I think they originally budgeted for eighteen and went two over before they pulled the plug. I know, (laughs) right? It wasn't that big of a thing. I mean, maybe it was bigger back then. But and then the other thing was, so many people are like, "Oh, it was a disaster," and it just got lambasted by the critics and yada yada. And I have to say, for every bad review. Well, I'd say for every two bad reviews, there was a good review and some people were just really hailing it Popeye at the time. So I was very surprised because I thought it was, I started reading reviews and there was somebody just like, you know, every nautical pun that you could think of talking about how this was a ship, sinking ship and all this. And I'm like, Oh boy.
1: I felt heel hauled watching this movie. This movie
5: blows it
1: down. It made 60 million and it was a decent size hit. And I was able to bring it up to both uh, Robert Altman and years later to Robert Evans. And it was funny because they both got the same reaction, which was, it made money. You right, <laughs> <know>? <laughs> They got real defensive. Both of them was like, OK, look, it made money. It wasn't the hit that they hoped. After this, Altman was kind of like banished to do all those plays into films for you know nine or ten years. So it was his most popular film after MASH. And as they wrote, also proved his Waterloo in Hollywood. They were mad that it didn't make more, I guess.
5: It made more money than Annie did when Annie eventually got released theatrically. It didn't
1: care for Annie when I saw it. So and that was John Huston, wasn't it? That yeah, yeah, was. This is a much better film.
5: I downloaded Annie to rewatch it a few months ago, and I still haven't done it. Because I was <sighs> when I was doing research for Flash Gordon, I was like, oh, I'll w- watch this other adaptation.
1: Well, Huston would always say, I'll do one for them and one for me. And Altman must have said, I'll do one for me and one for me. Take it or leave it. It's an all
4: film. And I think the most successful comic strip adaptation of all time, honestly. Like the, it's, it, it, it's a perfect evoc- uh, evocation of, uh, of, of the strip itself. Like, I mean, Superman was great, but that it, you know, that was bringing us, you know, the whole verisimilitude that Richard Donner kept talking about. Like that was attempting to pull it out of the comic book frame and, and throw it into the real world. Whereas this is like 100% like you're reading a panel.
5: I don't know, man. Those Blondie movies were pretty boss. <laughs> okay. I, see, I take it back. You're correct.
4: I mean, the sandwich was big.
5: And if they ever make my Hagar the Horrible film, it will be the most faithful adaptation.
1: Oh, and a side note, they yell, "Haul Ass, which had to be something new for a Disney movie. And it's re- repeated in the climax at least five times.
4: I remember being shocked
5: in the theater. What did he say? Poopneck Pappy swore. I think Robin Williams says shit at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh boy. Yeah. Disney distributing this, they must have been mortified. <laughs> that's probably why they pulled the plug. They saw those dailies and just said, "Oh no, that's it."
1: They threw this movie overboard. and cut it up for chum. The Sweet Haven tie-in toy would be too big. You know, it'd have. Like-
5: oh boy, do I want one though. I have to say, one of the best things about doing that research at U of M was. Seeing stills of those sets and being able to read all those little signs, because there are little tiny signs all over the place. And there are things about, you know, Blue dough. Of course, the one I think everybody can see for sure is where it says uh, no credit at Rough House's Diner. It says no credit. This means you wimpy or something like that. But yeah, there are all these little signs all over the place. I mean, on the windows of things, you can see the writing for whatever business it is and things painted on the windows. Uh, Just, yeah, it's amazing how they made everything feel so lived in.
1: So is this like a big room with a bunch of shelves or what's it look like? the, um, The archive itself.
5: It's a room with six desks and you like i said you request the boxes that you want they just bring you out banker's boxes they put them on the desk and then you have a big bookmark and you say okay i'm taking this folder out putting in the bookmark you get to do that if you if there's photos that aren't covered they will provide you with white gloves so you don't smudge up the photos but it's just folder after folder inside of a banker's box
1: can you whip out your phone and take pictures?
5: Oh yeah, yeah. No, I actually I uploaded some to Dropbox of um there's a a story. It's like somebody went through and just wrote down everything that happens in the movie, and it was going to be for what eventually became the press kit. They must have cut the Paul Dooley Wimpy song. Right at the 11th hour, because it is still in that write-up of where it is in the movie. And it's right around... Is it right at the I Am When I Am, like the the racing sequence? It comes in right around the time that uh, they're doing Food, Food, Food. And then it's almost like his is a refrain, because his song was called Everybody's Got to Eat. So it's I could almost see it like Food, 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 parenthesis, Everybody's Got to Eat.
1: Is there a hairy demo of that, too?
5: There is a Harry demo and a Dooley version, so they went so far as to actually record it. But did they film it? Dooley says they filmed it.
4: Oh, my God. Where is this footage? I my know, God. right? They're putting everything out on Blu-ray. They can't put up Robert Altman's Popeye <laughs> deleted scenes.
5: <laughs> I was surprised that there were extras on the, the Blu-ray, and it seems like they recorded them. At least one of them about the making of the movie was, I think, copyright 99, because Altman was actually interviewed for it. Altman, Robin Williams, a few other folks that were in the film, but I was very surprised that uh, Williams was very open to talk about it. And uh, like you said, Paul, Altman was more than willing to talk about it as well.
1: Yeah, Altman was always good about doing commentary tracks on the DVDs and stuff, Images, McKay, but uh, Nashville. Anyway, most of them, he went back and did them.
4: There are six people talking at the same time, so it's completely unintelligible. But but he did do them.
1: You know, it was a scary version of that was when Altman got his honorary Oscar, he was introduced by, I think, Lily Tomlin and Meryl Streep. The gag was they tried to do his style of overlapping dialogue. Two wonderful actors so embarrassed themselves. It's just like proving the point that Altman had the magic, you know? It's just like, stop. You're not doing it. if You're just embarrassing yourself.
5: That was rough. I just cringed again after all these years one of the things that i have heard about the film that i tried to actually either prove or disprove was that sweet pea was actually originally supposed to be eugene the jeep and i just can't see that i can't see them saying let's put this magical cgi type creature or puppet inside of this movie as opposed to sweet pea who's one of the more much more main characters
1: yeah when that isn't the jeep from the 50s
4: it was in the it was in the 40s i believe uh, uh when i think when nat sagaloff took over the uh the the comic strip that's when the jeep showed up but i i like to think that there was a uh, at one time a conversation between robert evans and jules Pfeiffer about whether or not the jeep could <laughs> be in this movie versus sweepy like i really want to be
5: a fly on that goddamn well should we put in the jeep i don't know <laughs> I'm walking if we don't. Evans, you promised me. Evans reportedly left them
1: alone. I think he only visited the set once. He was busy doing something like um, Urban Cowboy or something.
5: Yes, he was. And he was hanging out with Roman Polanski. Some of those behind-the-scenes photos I saw were pictures of Evans and Polanski hanging out down at the dock. Oh, those guys. I know, I know. Pretty tight, those two.
4: Get Irish on the phone. You know Jack Nicholson, don't you?
5: I looked through all of the drafts of uh, Pfeiffer's screenplay, and there was no Eugene the Jeep at any time. It was always Sweepy. Though I don't think Sweepy had like the psychic powers in the strip, but it feels like those come from somewhere. And so I think that's where that is are like, Oh well, it was Eugene originally, and they took out the Jeep and they put in the baby.
1: Next, the race, the horse race. That's another one where you're like. Well, this Altman guy got to put in something. Well, how about a horse race? It's like, sure. What's he put in miniatures <laughs> in you know arcade? It's like, ah, oh, God, this guy can't do anything right.
4: He made that goddamn horse race exciting.
1: He knows how to edit.
5: So to your point, Father Malone, as to where Sweet Haven is, they do have the OTB. So the whole film too. I mean, once Popeye gets to Sweet Haven, he's looking for his father. As so much of this movie is an economical film, is as, as far as what I'm talking about the economics. Not that it's economical. This whole idea of Pluto being that right hand of the, co- the Commodore, being able to destroy the oil house, being able to tax them into oblivion because he owns the, the <laughs> he owns the means of production, he owns the tax collector. This whole thing of like destroying the oils financially to the point where caster then has to fight oxblood oxheart and then you know that's like such a uh an inciting incident that they've been taxed into this state so now he has to go out and try to earn money a little bit
4: yeah, there's plot going on here in an altman movie
1: I, you know there's a story going on what, what the hell's going on here what's wrong with him conversations that they had in the car after they would leave the theater daddy what's taxation without rivers- <laughs> <laughs>
5: Glad you asked some. It also doesn't make sense. Sorry to keep harping on this, but it also doesn't make sense to have Eugene the Jeep because this whole movie too, other than taxation that I keep talking about is based around fathers and sons. So this whole idea of Popeye out looking for his dad, and then you've got him finding this foundling and becoming a mudda.
1: Yeah. all that of Father figures and things and authority figures that he had a problem with, which was, you, you got to remember too, when, he hit it big with Mash. You had all these young directors, you know, the new Turks in town, and Altman was forty-eight. He'd he be like a, a hipster father figure or something. So that's why, you know, he was all that stuff he'd done on TV for decades. He knew his was craft by then. It's natural he would want to do things different. He'd done it normal already.
4: Speaking to the whole fathers and sons thing, like um, poop deck pappy became my favorite Popeye character after seeing Ray Walston's performance, because I really believe that guy was, has been on the ocean since day one of his existence. And he's just that mean. I love how mean he is to Popeye in this movie, you little bread. I mean, I remember as a kid thinking like for the entire movie, like Popeye doesn't like spinach. What's wrong with this movie and uh and, and so uh I love that it paid off with uh with with Ray Walston like with poop Jack Pappy like forcing him effectively to eat it, or like you know encouraging that to occur at the end. Ray Walston is so good in this movie, I know that this movie is filled with people who are absolutely perfectly cast, but like. He, his performance to me rises above all of them. He's in it so briefly, and he he just takes the movie over. Quite literally, He he's, he's driving that boat.
1: <laughs> Veteran he is, he probably figured out how to steal the movie at that point. He didn't like children. He had this great line, too, was, they're just smaller versions of ourselves, and I'm not so crazy about myself.
4: <laughs> yeah, that is a great line. His whole song is fantastic.
5: So one of the earlier drafts of the script, rather than this whole story of how Popeye wouldn't eat a spinach as a two-year-old when Pappy left, there was this thing where when Pappy breaks Popeye's heart, Popeye goes into this weird fugue state and just starts repeating lines from earlier in the film. And Pappy says that he basically has a, a condition. I think you called it like the clonk or something like that. And, The only way to cure Popeye is by force-feeding him spinach. And then eventually, everything kind of goes back into the flow, and there's a lot more talk of, what's he called? Slimy Sam? So, like, Slimy Sam is the name of the octopus, and apparently the octopus and Pappy have been friends for all of these years, because the octopus, Slimy Sammy, is as mean as Pappy is. I wanted to see some flashbacks there. Young Pappy
4: and Slimy Sam hitting the town together, being mean.
5: One guy raises one glass, the other raises eight. Ten arms to menace you folks. When Pappy and Sam are on the scene. Yeah, you know, Slimy Sam's job is to protect his treasure, which is of course all these family memories, uh, which is terrific.
4: I kinda wish that was in there, honestly.
5: I agree. I just wish there was more Slimy Sammy. We were left a a void with Bluto. He's there. He does
4: the job of what he's supposed to do as that character. But the octopus uh, just sort of uh, grimacing angrily, like, is more emotive than Bluto's entire
5: performance. Is that mean? You're mean. I'm so mean. I had a dream I beat myself up. Did they shoot that octopus into the sky?
4: Yeah, that's what I hear. Like, Uh, with a cannon,
5: right? Right. It was supposed to go and hit the moon, but
1: but. All these missed opportunities. I know else was in the original climax
5: that was pretty much the biggest difference and there was definitely a lot more to slimy sam oh and the other thing is that Bluto in that version just kidnaps sweet pea he does not kidnap olive and she's much more in charge of things like popeye goes and starts to fight Bluto, and then olive is in charge of the ship that they're on and She's kind of got her shit together. I I like that a little bit more than poor Shelley Duvall stuck in that porthole kind of thing. Oh, I like the visual. She fits the role, right? She's the damsel in distress. Did they
4: give that part more to Ray Walston, the sort of taking the taking charge while Popeye has to deal with everything else?
5: Yeah, I think so. Which makes sense, I suppose. He, him being the master of the sea. I know, but ret- even not not even retrospectively at the time, even it
4: would have been cool had all about well done a little bit more because she wasn't always a damn of distress in those cartoons and those comic strips. You know, she was out there dishing it out, surprisingly dishing it
5: out. <laughs> yeah. These two brutes fighting over her all the time, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Remember when she slept, walk the entire uh, cartoon and she's walking around all those beams and those guys are moving those iron beams. around. <laughs> That's right.
4: She's got talent, man.
1: Don't just stick her in a buoy. We should mention too, talking about this archive, that it's in Ann Arbor, Michigan, University of Michigan. And Altman was very much a Kansas City boy. He even did a movie about Kansas City, called Kansas, which I didn't love. It's funny with Altman, when he would get it right, it would be so right, and when he'd get it wrong, like Beyond Therapy or aforementioned Quintet. In the late 80s, Altman enlisted the aid of University of Michigan students to help him uh, make the film Secret Honor, the one about Nixon, and they worked for free. And I think, uh, and U of M was always big on him. They had uh, seminars with him. They brought in, as I mentioned before, that Ellie Gould was there. Joan Tewksbury, the screenwriter from Nashville, was there. Altman himself was the climax to all that. But U of M had a very special place in their heart for Altman. When Altman spoke, this one guy stood up and embarrassed himself. And Altman said, are you auditioning? And then sometime later, he was doing a film called A Wedding in the Chicago area. And he was like, where's that kid? Who did the QA and he found the kid? Now I forgot his name now, so the story's bad. But the point is, he he was a big Michigan fan too. That's why the archive is there, I guess, and not Kansas City.
5: Yeah, I think it was very much that a secret honor connection. And that, didn't Tanner '88 have something to do with Michigan as well?
1: It shot in the Detroit area. It shot all over, but um, it also shot there. He probably got people to work for free on that one too. Uh, Speaking of making of books, um, there's a really good one on Popeye that's long out of print with about 200 photos. Were you able to find that, too? Oh, wow. I didn't even know that existed. God damn it. The one that he did for Brewster McLeod, they wanted to do the old publish the script but do a little bit of of a making of. And he let this student who was a a Dallas student. That's where the the dome is, right, for Brewster McLeod? He was a student with no writing credits. In Houston. Houston. Oh, Houston
5: Astrodome. Thank you.
1: Houston, well, it doesn't make sense to put the Houston Astrodome in Dallas. Well, it makes sense to me, but... The book, if you can ever find it, is the best making of I've ever read. Even better than Devil's Candy. Um, Altman told him pretty much, you can go wherever you want. And then partway through, he enlisted the kid to go do some uh, like grunt work. And uh, it just became this like 100-page succinct, what it's really like to be on
5: a movie set. I did find there's a... Uh read the dell book of uh popeye i didn't know that until yesterday when i saw the contracts or two days ago when i saw the contracts and stuff around that and then it was kind of neat there was a big premiere where it was uh all to do with like children's charity so that was kind of nice when they had their uh premiere they turned it into a charity event
4: it was lovely and with that the the top hatted uh robin williams In, in all those pictures those were fantastic
1: Well, remember at the time he was at the height of the zenith of Mork and Mindy. They were offered a ton of things for him to do for his first big feature. And they really waited their time until they had what they thought was the perfect one. And, of course, we talked about before, it's still perceived as a commercial failure and a, you know, critical flop. And it's kind of neither.
5: We've talked about almost everything about this movie other than Robin Williams. What did you guys think of his performance?
1: it's
4: perfect just as
5: good as it gets i guess
1: you know it's another one it doesn't look or act like anything else you've seen makeup's a little askew properly so i guess they probably would have taped his eyes shut but he had to do that one eye thing which can't be easy for an entire shoot and it's just it's a real unique piece and it's unlike anything he did in anything else also
4: it's a just a perfect evocation of that character, like uh, like I never once don't like the bulgy arms, as weird as that is on a human being, never don't believe that, and he sells all of the physicality, like you said, the squinty eye. Try doing that for any amount of time; it's 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 painful, and like it, like he pulls that off so well. The voice, the mumbling, like I don't know how much ADR was done, but like it, it like that. That's not easy to do that voice and make it sound like this is actually a human being talking. So there's all that. Then on top of it, Robin Williams clearly just not a, you know, he's a singer in that he's a performer and can carry a tune, but like, I think he holds his own here. Like all of his songs are really good. That, that lullaby song in particular you, you is very sweetly sung. Like I marvel at this performance. I think it's one of his best, honestly. I know, it, you know, he gets accolades for the more dramatic work, but this is, as dramatic as anything he did later, as far as I'm concerned. He's not playing laughs here, which is weird for Robin Williams.
5: That's true. It's very subdued for him. Compare this to the genie in Aladdin. Or any performance in the 80s.
4: Remember the Survivors with uh, Walter Matthau?
5: My goodness. How can I forget it? Saw that one theatrically.
1: <laughs> when he would model, and I remember Jack, guy, old man, and oh, got it. What was the sci-fi one that Chris Columbus did, uh, Millennial Man or whatever?
4: Bicentennial Man.
1: Bicentennial Man. I just want to jump out a window. I was just struck that it was funny that Pfeiffer was so protective of his script when he'd only done a few things and he only did a few things after. I mean, like, after Kyle Knowledge and Little Murders, he did like a TV movie, you know, maybe a short. But again, for him to think that Allman was going to touch his script after 15 films where he, you know, changed every one of them.
5: Well, that was one of the things that Pfeiffer brought up and that I read in another place as well but I think it originated from Pfeiffer he was saying that Nilsson was out of control and he was giving songs that he wrote from one person to another person i can't think of an instance in one of those songs where it doesn't feel like the character is singing the song you know it doesn't feel like th- it's their their words coming out of their mouth what don't you remember when Castor Oil sang about hamburgers i felt a little weird
1: Wimpy sang about
4: Bluto, that and he's large. Yeah. That yeah, I thought, why is Wimpy so in love with
1: Bluto? Yeah, it doesn't make sense that any of the songs would be interchangeable.
4: I think I think Fiverr was just looking for somebody to blame. Maybe. That script is good. It's that's a really fun script. All of Popeye's dialogue is written out, you know, phonetically. That's the and and Rob Williams hit it all so well. So and I think retroactively Pfeiffer has like gone on record saying, like, oh, I knew once Altman was gonna go over that my script was going out the window. It's like, I don't I don't think you did, man. <laughs> I don't think anyone is prepared for that. Like and that this was his first it wasn't his first screenplay, right? Because Little Murders had been adapted, but did he do the adaptation?
5: I think he did. And then of course Colonel Knowledge.
4: Right. Okay. So he was probably used to being unassailable and no one's changing his words, right?
5: Yeah. I don't know how he and Mike Nichols got along for... uh... I heard it was great. I heard, you know, Nichols
1: came from the theater. Pfeiffer was like, oh, it was great. We would sit down all the time and discuss every single line. And that is a tight script. There's nothing wasted in Colonel Knowledge. So that's quite a different beast than what he'd do on Popeye. Although the reports that he was on set for much of it and him and Altman got along great. So I think everybody get along great until they don't.
4: Until it's a box office failure, quote unquote, right?
1: What's the old line about success is only you no know, failure. As has, many
4: fathers and success is an orphan. Or, I mean, the other way around, failure is an orphan. Strike that, reverse it.
1: You know, there used to be this game we played where we discovered that Altman always left the dreamer in his movies dead or disillusioned. So, you know, dead would qualify for like McCabe and... uh Certainly, Brewster McLeod, into a lesser degree, you could see that Donald Sutherland looks really disillusioned at the end of MASH. So it's in varying degrees. But I think Popeye might be the exception where I don't know anybody who's dead or disillusioned.
4: Bluto ain't happy.
1: Bluto's not. Maybe he's, but is he disillusioned? I don't know. Maybe this game won't work for Popeye.
4: I like that game, though.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can match it to a bunch. It's
4: even dead like, or disillusioned. They should, Pi Parker Brothers.
1: <laughs> it was even in um, the player. There's a girl, uh, I think it's Cynthia.
4: Yeah. Oh, my God. Cynthia. Was it Gib?
1: Was it Gib? You expect somebody else to be dead or disillusioned than the one, you know, you expect, you know, like Tim Robbins to get his comeuppance or something. But when he doesn't, then they have to have somebody else that can be disillusioned. So dead or disillusioned, I'm sticking with.
5: All right. We are going to take a break and we are going to play a trio of interviews. First up, we will hear from the man who played Rough House, Alan Nichols. After that, we will hear from a Wimpy, Mr. Paul Dooley, and last but certainly not least, we will hear from Coal Oil himself, Mr. McIntyre Dixon, and we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear again from the man who played Roughhouse and did a whole lot more for the production of Popeye, Mr. Alan Nichols. I can't believe it was... I think 11 years ago that we spoke about dead ringer. That was like our third or fourth episode of the show. And now we're up to 560. It's been we a minute.
6: Should talk again about that. Dead ringer. I just found out the film. Someone put it on YouTube. I think it's actually probably a, one of meatloaf's management companies or something cuz it says ML concerts. I don't know where they got it. It's it's not the best quality and it's got a lot of sync problems. But, you know, I guess we do what we do.
5: Yeah, well, I'm sure you'll be raking in the royalties now.
6: No. Are you kidding me? They don't pay me nothing. They they just stole that puppy. So where where are you
5: located? I'm about midway between Detroit and Ann Arbor. I love Ann Arbor. Been there a couple times. Well, you even worked on um, Secret Honor. I worked Honor. on
6: Streamers, Secret Honor, and I was just saying, made the mistake of Streamers. We also did a Miller Highlight beer commercial there. In the 70s, I performed a musical version of The Creation of the World and Other Business by Arthur Miller, which we performed. It was turned into a musical by Stanley Silverman and Richard Foreman and we performed it at the Power Center. It was called Up From Paradise and Arthur Miller was played the narrator. I played Adam. Larry Marshall played the devil. Larry Marshall was a guy I did hair with. So I I, lo- I love Ann Arbor.
5: Since you worked on um Secret Honor, you were actually working with one of my former professors, uh Frank Beaver.
6: Right. Well, yes. I remember Frank
5: Yeah, he taught me film uh, all the way back in 1990.
6: Now, the thing with uh, Secret Honor was I kind of came in very late in the program because they were using so many students. They had to use my name as the assistant director or something to keep the Directors Guild happy. So I hope no Directors Guild people are listening because then they'll sue Bob. But he's gone, so it doesn't really matter. Have you been to his archives there?
3: Yes,
5: yes. Actually, I'm going to go back for research, I think, in May for Popeye.
6: I want to go. I've got to go, actually.
5: And then um, with Popeye, it's basically just, you know, still doing the podcast. And it's like, okay, it's time we talk about this movie because I haven't talked about it in a long time. So
6: I'm wondering if it's ever going to resurface as a, you know, as a great cartoon comic come
5: to life movie. Well, yeah, it just got lambasted. I was just reading about it in that um, fiasco book. Watching the movie, I mean, it still holds up. I think it's a great film.
6: I do, too. It was an amazing experience, what we ended up doing over there and how we created I mean, when Altman's films, when we went on location, they were always, it was like Bob Altman's summer camp. This specific one was even more so because we were isolated in that we were all, we didn't know, we were all together. We were our only social life. We ended up having such a ball, I mean, and creating events for ourselves. And we used to have these Friday night talent shows hosted by Robin, performed by everybody that was, that wanted to perform, which was everybody. And we'd all perform for each other. It was just for us. But it was great. It was like, you know, having your own nightclub.
5: From what I understand, that whole city was completely built.
6: Yes. And it still exists. So uh, it was an amazing experience because we were all there pretty well for a good, you know, training period. It was physically demanding because to get to the set, you had to walk down this hill, pretty decent sized hill. And then, you know, it was all just walking around and dancing and on this uneven surface. It wasn't like a studio movie where you're on a flat surface. You were on pretty rugged territory, you know, or in pretty rugged territory. But we had training sessions in the beginning. and We had aerobics classes given by Robin's wife. We had um, dance classes given by some of the performers that were all from different circuses. And it was just a great experience.
5: If memory serves, you went as kind of an advanced man. You were there before the whole rest of the crew even showed up.
6: Yes, that was was early on in the process. Bob's production manager, producer, Tommy Thompson, had a, a disagreement with Scott Bushnell, his other producer, and he basically quit. And Bob was back in New York at the time when this happened. And I was in Montreal living at that time. And he called me and said, could I come down to um, New York to chat with him? And I said, sure. So I came down and he said, "Um, I think uh, you have to go over there. So I went over as kind of an interim production person, never having done the job, but knowing what it required and being a big fan of Tommy's and also... Being a friend of Scotty's and not having whatever history they had that caused their breakup. And I was over there for probably three weeks and I had to, um, I was kind of charged with by Bob to find out what was going on. I was also asked to be an interim production manager until they could find someone who could replace Tommy, which they did. Co. Doc Erickson. That was a tougher time. That was a tough time because uh, I had I had been a little bit. Um, well, it was I couldn't stay with my friends, <laughs> the whole Altman regime that I knew, because I had to basically inquire of them and talk to them all individually to find out what had gone down that made Tommy leave. And it was it was a tough one.
5: Sounds like you were an investigator at that point.
6: Yeah, I was like an investigative reporter. But the other thing, and I don't know if I told you this before, but my history with Bob was at that point, we were pretty dear friends, pretty close friends. And uh, I had done maybe five or six movies with him at that point. And we had just finished A Perfect Couple, and we just finished Health. And I had done the music for both of those, and I'd done music for three women. And when he started doing Popeye, he said, I want you to be the composer for Popeye and do the music. And I went, great. Then all of a sudden he called me. This is early on. This is before they even went over there to Malta. And he said, "Um, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is they want a name, and they want to pay for – harry Nilsson to be the music composer said but the good news is or that's either bad news or good news bad news for you but the good news for you is that i would like you to be the his assistant or music supervisor or musical director or whatever and so he said and we're going out to dinner tonight <laughs> and so myself and harry and uh, bob went out to dinner and uh, During the course of the dinner, it was an amazing dinner, and they were just meeting for the first time. And it was, we went to this really classy Russian restaurant. It was pretty great, drank entirely too much vodka, but it was still great. And um, at the end of the meeting, we realized that Harry and I loved each other, but I wasn't going to be the music supervisor because he wanted Van Dyke Parks. Who I also respect and love. Here's me like losing these jobs <laughs> very quickly <laughs> to people I don't like. I mean, I love and people I don't know, and I'm meeting them, and then I'm finding out, okay, well, I'm not going to be it. And so I left a couple of days after and, you know, just said, hey, but look, Bob, you did what you could do, and the studio has the power in this case, and they're not going to let you bring your old team on. And, I'm fine. So I just, so my only job at that point was roughhouse. Then when I got this call to come and do this interim investigative reporter production manager gig, it was another, you know, moment in the life of Alan Nichols where he serves on panels that he doesn't belong. <laughs> I'd never done any of that before, but it, it turned out great. I mean, uh, I did end up finding the crux of the problem and <clears throat> they did end up getting a great production manager, Doc Erickson and uh Tommy Thompson and Scotty agreed to disagree. Tommy was left Bob for a long time. And in the end, in subsequent roles, I became the Tommy. I became production manager until geez, until the after shortcuts. So that was a long time. And I, it was my my working behind the scenes that I really kind of was I guess aiming for in more the European style than than the American style in Europe most directors were assistant directors whereas here mo, here in America most assistant directors don't advance to directors maybe they do in television now but. But in in those days, most assistant directors just became great assistant directors, and that's all they did. Yeah, so that's how I lost three jobs. (laughs) How I didn't have three jobs on Popeye.
5: How was it dealing with the powers that be in Malta?
6: The first thing I did was um, I called up the head of the film commission, and we went out and had lunch, and we chatted, and I befriended him, and I... I said, look, you know, we're here and we're getting ready to shoot. And apparently we've got a problem with phone lines and we don't have phones out there. And it's going to affect the production and it's going to affect us financially and thus you financially. I don't know. Within a couple of weeks, we had phones. So, I mean, I was just pretty honest with them. I never I didn't know how to make mistakes because I'd never done the job before. So I just worked on personal relationships, and here's what we need, and can you help us? And, but there had been some movies that had been done there before, and the reason they had a movie industry was because of this underwater tank, this filming tank that they used. For those people that don't know, it's a controllable situation where you can film in water and outside of water, and it looks like you're in the ocean because the horizon was built on this tank so that you were you could just see the ocean so that you could actually see ships going by in the background so that brought malta a number of films also they had a they were offering and this was before canada started doing it but they were offering good deals and money back and stuff like that but it also brought with it a few of the shameful things of the industry which is kickback and and so we uncovered a few of those in some of the local vendors where we would try to rent things. They'd say, you know, you can rent our for example, I'll say boat for five thousand. I said, that's an awful lot. Yeah, well you keep one thousand, I get two thousand, and then another two thousand will split between you know, it was all convoluted kickback money, and it was ridiculous. So we said we don't want to. So we drew up, even in the short time I was there, so we drew up these proper contracts that clearly didn't include kickback, and because we had a great honest crew, you know, and they didn't want to be involved in that. But uh, I learned later that one of the I can't remember his name. He was I think a local production manager. He's probably if he's alive, he's probably probably ten years older than me, maybe. 20 years older than me, so he's too weak to sue me for saying this. But Or if he wants to sue me, he can go ahead because he did something wrong. But he would order supplies, building supplies, and he would apparently order more supplies than were necessary for the set, I found out, because he was building a country home on Malta, which I hope his family is enjoying today. I, I remember hearing that from someone and, you know, it's rare that that exists, but it used to exist in the studio system in L.A. Struther Martin, an actor I worked with on Slapshot, had me out to his house, a bunch of us out to his house in Malibu Lakes. And he told us when he was out there that pretty much all of Malibu Lakes was built, the homes were built as a result of film shoots on the various studios where they would order extra supplies, extra lumber, and the truck would drop it off at the studio and then go out to the building site at Malibu Lakes. So I guess it exists.
5: When it comes to those sets, are you shooting the interiors as well? Are they fully built out so you actually can shoot, say, like the restaurant scene? Yep. He built actual, and it was Wolf Kruger who
6: was the designer, and he was amazing. He built them all, and it was really funny. He went to the, the builders, the contractors, on the first day, and he told them to leave their levels in the truck because he didn't want anything to be level. He wanted it all to have a little bit of crookedness to it. The restaurant was built exceptionally large so that camera positions could be filmed properly and the house where olive oil lived. Was built so that we could pull away walls and pull out windows for filming and lighting and whatnot. And oh, let me talk about the lighting. Uh, So it was built by a production designer who really was aware of how to build a set that was workable for both actors, dancers, a crew that was going to light things, and special effects people and stunt people that were going to actually fall on floors. And so it was really done with a lot of care. And every piece of that set, not splinter-free, but, you know, it was built with everything in mind, all the the care in mind, except they weren't level. <laughs> Throw out the level. That was an amazing set. But the restaurant set, Giuseppe Rattuno, who was the cinematographer, when he lit that set, it was the most gorgeous lighting that you don't notice in the world. And he had about nine or ten real old-fashioned arcs, arc lights, sitting outside the windows, just pouring light through. It was absolutely amazing. Like the lighting on the on the boat. And even like the care that was taken as to where to build things so that the lighting would be right, like that dock that ran out.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: I mean, it's just really clever, smart. I mean it's stuff that if you do the right amount of pre production and you have the right team, you can handle it. And these were pros. How long would you say that you were in Malta for? I personally was only there for three months. But then I think the rest of the crew extended and a limited number of the cast extended to do all of the the stuff in the tank and the stuff in that lagoon. And actually Bob uh used to tell me soon after he said, you know, I shouldn't have let the character Roughhouse go. I could have used him for more of that stuff. He he harped on that for a while. I would have been glad to stay.
5: I was rewatching the film and I had forgotten just how much of a present you have in it and that you get name dropped quite a bit.
6: <laughs> yeah. I forgot that I was in it too. <laughs> it was a great time. I mean we had along with having a you know a great cinematic experience. We did. We created a our own little society that was together and music was great. Doug Dillard and Ray Cooper and oh my gosh. It was there were jam sessions. There were there were these talent shows
5: that were just marvelous. It was terrific. Yeah, what an amazing just everybody in that cast. I mean, even looking at how small of a role Dennis Franz has. Like I don't even think he has a close up.
6: Yeah, he was one of the toughs. Yeah, my good friend Ned Dowd was also one of the toughs. He went on to do have quite a career in the, as a producer in the business. I think he's known to Alan Autry now, but Carlos Brown was there. He had been in a film with Alan Rudolph, and Bob liked him, and he was an up-and-coming actor at the time. He was also a second- or third-string quarterback with the Green Bay Packers at one point. but. He's a good story. He changed his name to Alan Autry because he discovered he was related to Autry at one point. I don't know how that story goes. But but then, oh, I also must tell you for fun, Valletta, the town 20 minutes away from us where we were filming, had a wonderful casino. <laughs> so needless to say, for people that like playing board sports,
5: <laughs> it was pleasurable. So we had some good times there. This was shot, what, 1979, right? I'm trying to think. Was it 80 or 79? Okay. I, I'm trying to remember when it came out, if it was 80 or 81. but um, Yeah, because
6: I did Dead Ringer right after it. Right. I can't remember.
5: But then it's weird, too, because I think Health was shot, but then it was not released for a couple of years as well, That's right? right?
6: That's right. But a perfect couple was 79, wasn't it? So it must have been 80 must have been 80. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure it was 80.
5: Was there a problem with drugs or alcohol when uh, this was going on?
6: There was no problem. (laughs) Everybody knows Bob's drug of choice was pot. However, they did it. He had it available to him over there, and it was fine. And in terms of other recreational drugs, there was a few of those around, but it was mainly social beveraging. There was a lot of celebration and joy that went on. with. I mean, we would make things up. Well, Bob had his birthday over there. So I remember the special effects crew put together a whole fireworks show for him for his birthday. But there was also like there was a local pub that we inherited and we taught them how to make a proper hamburger. They didn't know how to make hamburgers over there. They didn't know how to put them on a bun. That was ridiculous. So they, we taught this bar, this bar how to make hamburgers, and that became the spot. They could do really good french fries, though. They had french fries down, and they had a great sausage place, <laughs> of all things. Most of the people, that, the musicians and the visiting folks and stuff like that, most of those people probably kept their own recreational drug use personal, like I said, Bob's pot is well publicized, and that was an event. I'm sure there was a little bit of cocaine use over there, but I never figured out how it got over there, although I'm sure it must have been either imported or because there wasn't much happening on that on that island. It was an amazing island if you really looked at it. it had some, I mean, a lot of religious history, you know St. Paul and all of that. And I remember one easter going to this i can't remember the name of it but an anglican church and i should, i said one easter that easter i went to an anglican church in valletta that had this a uh, young boys choir from england and apparently they still do it every year and sing this the whole all the easter hymns and with and with the brass quintet playing the music it was Probably one of the most magical experiences I've ever had. There was a lot of card games. You had to make your own fun. So it was town shows, music jam sessions, dinners at various cast members if they cooked, going out to the casino. And then we had our own. We had a backgammon tournament, and we had a challenge poker tournament over the course of the shoot. And I'm proud to say I won both.
5: Congratulations.
6: It was, yes, it was quite good. And I want some good money.
5: (laughs) It was all luck. I'm curious about how you guys actually shot the musical sequences, because there has to be that time in between, obviously when you're meeting Harry Nilsson, and then when they're doing these things for playback, imagine they were kind of much more rougher versions than what we actually heard on the soundtrack. They were rougher
6: versions in that they were probably recorded live. But uh And some t- were repaired. But we had such good musicians over there that we built a recording studio over there on the top of the hill overlooking the, the village. We built this recording studio. When I say we, the company built a recording studio. And Harry spent all of his time in there. And he was writing and demoing the songs. And then he would do the tracks to the songs. And then, for example... Uh, Sweet Haven, the national anthem, he would do the tracks and record them into the night and one night, I got a call at three in the morning, saying, Alan, could you come and sing the Sweet Haven song so we can play it back for the cast the next day so they can learn it on the set. And it wasn't that difficult but that's how it went. And then, I think I did the same thing with food. It was really great. I mean, And he picked the right Guy, because I mean, I've spent my whole life inside a recording studio and I'm pretty musical, so I can pick up the stuff quickly. And uh it was really fun. He, he was kind of treating the music the way Bob treated some of his earlier movies and improv and ad lib. The music was being treated that way, but Bob was sticking to the script and the other, you know, because Jules Pfeiffer was over there. <laughs> there wasn't going to be that much playing around with the words. Yeah, and everybody loved the idea of singing. And then, of course, the different vocal groups or the different vocalists within the movie, like the Steinettes who played the the women, Olive's friends, they had a vocal group. They were working on their own, and they worked with Harry beforehand, so they were very musical, and that was... You know, you put enough people in there to sing, to bolster it, you know, and Van Dyke was... He was, I think he played the barber or the, everybody was a performer, you know, Bill Irwin and of course, Bill Irwin
5: playing a mute, but. but he was very good at playing a mute. There were a lot of roles that I remember him in where he never said a word and he's still doing that as uh Mr. Noodles on Sesame street. Oh, he's so good. Though. I just saw him
6: a couple of years ago at a, do you know who Ricky Jay is? Was? Oh yeah. The magician and actor. I saw him at Ricky's Memorial in New York. Great guy, Bill. He apparently does dance and kind of fight and movement choreography for for musicals, for some plays. Not choreography like he does, but I think when they need comic movement or movement specialists, he's the guy. That's another thing that I don't know if people appreciate because is that all the effects that were done and all the fights and everything was all done in the camera. There was no after effects of Popeye. I mean, I think if it, if anything, it should be taught in film school for that, just to see how that's done, you know, and how that is possible.
5: Popeye has one of the greatest visual gags for me, which seems like it was a lot of effort for a very quick shot, which was when Bluto gets so mad that he... Closes his eyes so tight that everything turns red, and that you get that shot of Olive and Sweet Pea and Popeye all in red. I love that.
6: Yeah, and I don't know for whatever one came to mind, the piano falling. I mean, that was done. That was a a real hollowed out piano. Was that Paul Smith actually singing? I think he was dubbed. I'm I'm almost positive, but probably. Probably not to his. He was pretty. He had a kind of a attitude, should I say, a little bit too much attitude for a for a Bob team player. But everybody out. He was the, He was a tough one. To, a tough nut to crack.
5: He was a bit of a loner. There was that actor, and I'm trying to remember his name, but he was big and bald. He was uh, the the prize fighter. Oh,
6: Big Pete. Well, you're talking about my best friend in the whole world. He's since passed away. um, But he was my road manager for my rock group. Yeah, I introduced him to Bob when we were doing filming quintet in Montreal. And Pete was, uh, he had long been abandoned his uh, road managing career and he was driving cab. And I was helping Bob out in the production end. And Bob said, well, we need a transportation department. I said, I know just the guy. (laughs) So Pete came in and handled the uh, transportation for the whole shoot. Being an interested person, he loved the film business. He helped Wolf Kruger out with the production design, you know, art pickups and stuff like that. And he became very interested in that end. And then he became very interested in just production management, and he ended up being uh, quite a a line producer in film for several years. He actually was my producer on
5: Dead Ringer. He must have loved having that huge carving made of him.
6: Oh, he did. I'm still in touch with his daughter. We still like share, you know, Christmas cards and birthday cards. Matter of fact, I just sent her uh, a note because. February 5th was Pete's birthday. Peter Bray is his name. A lovable, lovable big guy. Sorely missed.
5: It must have been nice having, well, him around since you were so familiar with him, but then all of these other kind of Altman players, you know, Paul Dooley and Shelley Duvall and just these familiar faces that you've worked with before.
6: It was great. And we we all made friends very quickly because of the you Know the, the different classes we were taking in the, the Pilates class, and the you know, I don't think they call it Pilates, or aerobics class, or whatever. And, and then uh, we all did things like I had to cut my hair off. I had more hair then. I was the first one to get the haircut when I had pretty long hair. So it was like a, I can do it, you can do it, you know. And so, and then everybody cut their hair. But oh, I must say that meeting the circus performers and the That was really great for us lowly actors or musicians or whatever we are. But um, I have one bone to pick about that whole film. So I did Buffalo Bill, and Harvey Harvey Keitel and I became real good friends. And Harvey wore a, um, not a London fog, it's a design that's out. It's a plaid design, but it's, so one of those raincoats. And Harvey had this old one. He said, you know, I'm going to give it to you because you like it so much. Because I, I always liked it. So I took it and I wore it with pride. And then for some reason, I brought it over to Malta. I don't know why, but I got it over there. And I, the Scotty was doing wardrobe as well as casting and everything she does. And she said, um, you know, we need a raincoat for, the, for uh, Jeff, the reporter. You know, it's got to kind of look like an old raincoat. I said, well, I have a raincoat with me, but it's really, it's kind of important to me. It's a gift from Harvey from Buffalo. She said, Oh, you'll get it back for sure. So they took it. He wears it in the film. They put a new lining in because the lining is very recognizable as whatever the name of this (laughs) coat is. A Burberry. That's it. So I have my original Burberry coat. Jeff Hoyle's wearing it. You can see it in the movie. You must have just seen it. He he's, wears the re- fedora and he's the reporter. So by the end of the shoot, I had, you know, you forget those things. And so then I thought, oh, well, it'll just be shipped back to LA. I'll get it when I'm back in LA. So I, I call him and I said, you know, I want my Renko back to you. Oh, Disney has it because apparently all wardrobe gets logged into the wardrobe department. Now I suppose I could go to Disney. <laughs> Maybe see if it's still there. <laughs> I haven't wanted to go down that rabbit hole yet. So I lost my favorite
5: raincoat. Sorry, Harvey. It sounds like you just had a great time working on this film.
6: Oh, we did. We did. It was a there was a party carnival like atmosphere at times cuz when you're making your own fun, you're making your own fun. You know, you're, there was a lot of people that had I think someone gave birth over there. <laughs> Someone's wife gave birth over there, and I'm trying to remember whose. Maybe it was one of the guys in the band. It was just a really good time, and it was. We possibly lost control sometimes because of the good times, but in the end, the fun we had and the fun we made over there was so terrific. And I remember uh, Bob Evans came over, and he saw one of the talent shows, and he decided that we had to recreate that at the opening at Grauman's Chinese Theater and in the tent outside. So we, cr- we created this little talent show, and it was horrible. It didn't work at all. I mean, it worked in its own element. But we tried to recreate it in this at this opening night of this movie where all people want to do is look and see who's there, the celebrity look. It was quite... A disaster. That was the performance
5: part of it. How did the movie go over at the premiere?
6: I don't think they knew how to accept it. I can't recall the reception because we were, quite honestly, I was actually, I had been charged with putting together this talent show replica in the tent. And I was very nervous about it. And my nervousness was well founded because it didn't work at all. People walking around drinking and getting food and talking to other people and looking for other celebrities and talking to other celebrities. Nobody cared about people on stage. And it was a small stage. But I got the feeling that it, was, that it didn't go over well at all. That was another reason why it wasn't worth celebrating too much. We tried to have fun, but it was a strain to try and have that much fun. I don't think anybody expected that. Up until that point, I think it was the most money Bob ever spent on a film in his life at that point. I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it was $13 million or something like that, or $9 I And up until that point, you know, I'd never heard those numbers talked about. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of remember being, and they were not good reviews. I remember that. And I think it just was a disappointment at that point, because they put so much into it. And everybody put so much into it. I mean, I would think somewhere down the line, maybe even after I'm long gone, someone's going to come up and say, This was kind of brilliant. Because it was taking a cartoon comic and bringing it to life and having it make sense and be kind of a pretty decent love story and a pretty decent moral tale. And, you know, and it, I don't know. I don't know if it ever did really well anywhere i don't follow that kind of thing anyways but but like was there was there ever a like an an actual instance of it being
5: not that i'm aware of i mean it is out on blu ray which is nice that it's mm-hmm. not just hanging out on vhs or that it yeah you know, i know i can't remember if it was health took a while i can't even remember if health is available and then quintet took a long time to come out on Oh, Ray. yeah. And then it came out in that four-thing four, four thing set. And then finally, Images had a really nice release, but that was tough to find for a while, too.
6: Yeah, I have the Images soundtrack. There's an album. And um, I've just recently been dealing with a company in Bristol, England. They released the Three Women soundtrack. And I got them to also release the uh, source music from Three Women. All of the... Which is great, and it's on its own little separate album, digital release. It's called Wave Theory. Wave Theory—they do soundtracks. Yeah, they're good people.
5: I think actually they might have. Um, I just spoke with the gentleman who did a song for Stanley Kubrick for two thousand and one, and I think it was Waveform that put that out, which was interesting. That they almost had a uh, a song based off of the movie that they're trying to use it to promote the film.
6: Have you ever uh, spoken with Mike Kaplan?
5: That's who I'm talking about, I think.
6: Oh, yeah, he did. And he worked a lot with Bob.
5: Yeah, exactly. Yep, Mike Kaplan is the guy. And yeah, he just got his uh, song released on this record label. Okay, oh, <laughs> I, I knew it was Mike, but I, the last name was not coming to me at all.
6: I turned Wave Theory onto Mike because they were looking for a different image and they loved the Bodhi Wind pictures the paintings, the sand paintings, and the pool paintings from the movie Three Women. And so they they got in touch with Mike through that. We ended up not using that one for the source music, but we ended up using this painting. Well, you go on the website and see, you'll love it. It's these two gals in a car driving in the desert. It's a great album cover. They're clever guys. Their, their names are Dan Jones and Simon... Can't think of, of sign last name, but I think one of them writes scores, and the other one I'm not sure what he does. They're just it's just film music, and they just release it digitally. And then they'll release it in vinyl if there's a call for it. But uh, so far they they've done for me they've done the three women music, and they're working on the perfect couple music, the band. So
5: I would love to talk to you about three women sometime.
6: Oh yeah. All right, well, I'll let you go. And thank you very much.
5: Thank you, sir. It was great talking with you.
6: Okay, see you, Mike.
0: So, you think you got troubles, huh? It's not easy being me, master of my own destiny. And I hate responsibility
3: Oh, it's not easy being me
0: Oh, it's hard to be in charge Even harder being
3: large
6: But you charge when you're in charge Oh, it's not easy being me Left,
2: right, don't step right there in
6: front of me.
0: Right, left, left, right, yes, sir, you're Admiral T. Oh, I hate him so much. Ah, it's not easy being me. Admiral of me own ship at sea. Now I know why I admire me. Oh, it's not easy being me. It's not easy being mean. The problems a large, if you know what I mean.
5: Up next, we're going to hear from the man who played Wimpy, Mr. Paul Dooley. We started our conversation by talking about how Mr. Dooley met Robert Altman.
7: Yes, I sort of drifted into it without, without auditioning. I know he doesn't like to audition. Safe so tries to find people, and that's the reason it brings the same people back so many times. Shelley Duvall constantly, uh, uh, Keith Carradine constantly. I mean, it's a stock company of people. He likes working with them, and he has the same crew, and you all get to know each other, and it's just like old home week when you do a new movie with them. Instead of bringing you in for 10 days or two weeks or whatever the part might really be, he brings everybody on day one, and they go home at the end of it. He likes the idea of having them all there. I said to him, wouldn't you save money if you sent some of these actors home? He said, probably would, but I don't know if I'm going to need them at the last week or the middle week. If they're hanging around, we're having deep meals together, and I see their faces, I'll put them in something. I'll bring them back and put them in something. There's a lot of improvisation, and writing the script as you go along, that's how he likes to work, and that's why there's so many people in this company are old faces at them. Henry Gibson's one of them. He was in Nashville. He's great to work with. His actors love him, and he loves his actors.
5: Yeah, I was very curious about the improvisation and as far as how much is even written down before you start a project like a wedding or a perfect couple.
7: Wedding was written sort of scene by scene. The actors didn't know what their parts were going to be in the middle or the end of the movie. We'd get new pages the day before and then they would work on them at night and make just enough pages for the next day. It was very easy because wedding it took place in a big mansion. There were two days in a church getting married and everything else happened in a huge mansion on a lake in uh, north of Chicago. So we'd be in, in the dance room with the orchestra then we go to the gift room with the gifts then we go to the another room and they are all just like do everything in one big room and then move to the other room. And then there'd be certain other situations in the kitchen or the dining room and it was all kind of chunks of places to go and revise. But we knew our character so it wasn't hard. He knew what We knew what our attitudes were. He's great to work with.
5: You worked on the Jules Pfeiffer play you were talking about, and obviously he It was
7: called Hold Me, which is the name of one of the sketches.
5: And obviously he wrote Popeye. I was curious, what was your relationship like with him, and what was he like?
7: I did a play that Jules wrote. Actually, I knew him before I ever worked with any of his scripts. He lived about uh, across the street one block up from me, and I knew him socially. And my wife was best friends with his wife for his first wife, anyway. But then I got into a hero called The White House Murder Case, directed by Alan Arkin and full of improvisers. Almost all the actors are improvisers. They had Paul Benedict and had Richard Libertini and had Bob Baloban and then all these people, Andrew Duncan. And since Alan is an improviser and they're an improviser, we had to stick to the script because Jules was a very well-known writer. But there was a great sense of, it was a feel of improv because that was our background. And we would learn lines that were just written on the page, but as we did them, they tended to feel like improv, because we have a tendency to overlap lines, and, and a Broadway playoff and is so careful you, you don't speak till your other actors finished. Or if you're in a film, you leave them room to cut. But you never overlap in a movie because they want everything clean. We brought a kind of a, an immediacy and a, a normal sound to our acting, even with a script. Anyway, I then uh, I, I did a, a couple of other things with him before we even got to Popeye, but he was a boy cartoonist. He grew up uh, reading Popeye so he was the perfect person for it. And some scenes in the film are just right out of the old comic strips. I remember as a kid I was maybe 14, I'm reading Popeye. I suddenly realized it was a continuation of a story where Popeye for about a year was looking for his father, so it's kind of a story in a comic strip. And when he found them exactly the, exactly like each other, and he put that scene in where he says, you is me pap, he says, I ain't nobody's pap. He ain't got more springs than I know of. He said, well, look at the squinky eye. He said, what squinky eye? Look at bulgy arms. What bulgy arms? So that was Ray Walston played the father. I clearly remember it from when he found his father in the comic strip back when I was a kid. I love Jules, he's great, I'm still in touch with him.
5: Oh, good. Is he doing all right? Because I haven't heard from him in forever.
7: He lives on Shelter Island, which is at the end of Long Island. There's another tiny island out there. You take a little ferry boat for five minutes to get to a Shelter Island, and we're about the same age. I'm 94. My birthday was the 22nd, just two days ago, three days ago. And Jules is close to that same age. Right now, I wrote a book, and right now my assistant and I are reaching out to people I've known over the years to give me a read the book and give me a quote for the back of the book. You know, that they say, wonderful, thrilling, touching, hilarious. But it's really just a memoir about my young life, my early career, and all the stuff I've done.
5: Do you have a title already?
7: It's called Movie Dad. Mm-hmm. It's kind of based on the fact that I played the father in films of, uh, for um, about 25 actors. Many of them famous, some of them not so famous. Julia Roberts, people like that. Then there's a picture of me and Molly Ringwald and Sixteen Candles on the cover. That was kind of the one that kicked off my being known as his father. I turned it in about four months ago and they told me it'd be published in October. I don't know what they're doing to it, but <laughs> those are their rules. I just started in the pandemic because I didn't know what I was gonna do with myself. And about four or five years earlier I'd done a one man one man show out here. Uh, it's about an hour and a half and and drew from that and expanded on it to became a book. Doing that film, Papa, was the most magical experience I've ever had because uh, we, we were in the island of Malta, which is a terribly small island in the middle of the Mediterranean. I mean, never went to the, the capital city there, but we lived in a kind of a suburb of that city in a little town called Malia. Those were our apartments. But we all believed that we lived in Sweethaven, which is the name of the town and the wonderful set that was built to portray it. You are 12-hour shooting in, a, in an imaginary town. Then you have lunch, and then you watch the dailies from the day before. You're just infused. You're just, you know, you're nothing but that film and that town and those characters. So we all felt we lived in Sweet Haven. It was built from scratch, from nothing, nowhere. There was nothing there. They, the set designer just built it all. He went there six months early. He bought uh, new lumber from Canada, cheaper there. Sent over, and then they distressed it to look like a hundred-year-old whaling village. It was wonderful. It just we were just uh, all caught up in it. And he hired clowns and acrobats and stunt men and actors good at humor. And there was Popeye. There was Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall and Ray Wilson was his father. Tell
5: me about the outfit that you had to wear because. You're not that big of a guy, but Wimpy definitely is.
7: Oh no, I was a pretty trim in those days. First of all, it's made of quilting, and it's a, it's a, a fat suit they call it. It's a pair of pants and on top uh, coming down the arms to the to the uh, wrist, and it's very fat because it's fit, filled with cotton or something. And then uh, a heavy jacket and big pants. And I'm a size twelve shoe, but my shoes are a twentieth size twenty. Papa had the big shoes. Olive had the big shoes. Esther Royal, Oliver's brother, had the big shoes. And a lot of the actors had these big, specially made shoes. And they stuffed the ends of them with cotton so that you wouldn't, your foot wouldn't slip around, you know. They made it fit you by putting cotton in the ends of the shoes. But boy, you dressed up in that costume, you looked at it, you really were the character. They, uh, shaved off my eyebrows and built fake eyebrows a little higher to make it look like I'm constantly surprised, and a little tiny mustache, almost like Hitler's. <laughs> you don't know what color Popeye's hair was in, in the cartoon or Wimpy. They're just little lines, little drawing lines. So they made us both have a kind of a light redhead look, Popeye. What you saw of his hair was just a little above the ears and it was slightly red, and mine was too. Popeye in the cartoon just has four lines coming down from his big nose. Couldn't do it with four lines on film. It wouldn't be visible. But it was pretty small. Pretty small, just a little brush. Like a little toothbrush almost. Most fun I ever had, really, in a, because of all the other people.
5: Did they have to do something to your face to make you look heavier as well?
7: No, they didn't. I think I just tried to act fat. Because I have some pictures of me in between scenes. I mean, a day of the be- day before we went there kind of a week early, and there's a group of the whole group of us you know, singing a song, actually. It was very trim. So, by the end of it, of course, on lunches made for you by craft service, you know, <laughs> we all would gain weight because I wasn't I was thinking about anything. I hey, ate whatever I wanted, and, as much as I wanted, and probably starchy, you know, those lunches you have on the. Uh, I mean, you can be a vegetarian and go to your lunch and with the meal made by the, the uh, caterer. To you, and you eat potato, mashed potatoes and gravy or meat or whatever. I knew from my time in the commercials, if you eat something in a, in a scene and you just have to do take after take after take, then you're going to get sick of it. And so it's very common in a commercial you take a bite of something and you look pleased and maybe you swallow one bite. Often you'll use what they call a spit bucket. You'll get rid of the food in your mouth because you're going to do four or five, six takes. Uh, you don't want that food. You might be too much sugar in it, and uh, you just spit it out before you swallow it. Because every little section of a commercial is like two seconds, you know. You just have to look pleased when you're eating it. So when I got there, I didn't want to eat any hamburgers, uh, first of all. I tried one before we started filming. It was terrible. The meat had come from Germany, and I don't know if it had goat meat in it or not. I didn't want It was awful. I made a promise to myself, I wasn't going to eat any hamburgers. I asked the prop, they were excellent because it was a very big budget, $13 million. It ended up 20 because we went over budget. I asked the prop man to make me a fake hamburger with a fake lettuce, fake burger, fake tomato, sesame seeds. And they were excellent. And it's made of latex, it's very light. And I said, while you're at it, can you make me one with the, one bite out of it? They did that because they were very happy to be helpful. They had a hamburger with two bites out of a hamburger half-finished. So every time a scene would begin, I would have the hamburger in my hand. And when they said action, I would start chewing with my tongue in my cheek or pretending to chew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you see next to me a hamburger with a bite out of it. Because I used to be a magician, and I knew that would work. It just, you fake the chewing. So I never, ever swallowed any hamburgers. I ate any of them. It turns out we're the got extended, and we're there six months. That was very really good. I didn't have to bother with though. I learned from commercials what to do with um, food and, uh, on camera, because you never know it's when it's going to be six takes or something. Or even in the movies, they don't eat very much. You've noticed people having dinner. Um, you don't see them eating very much. You see them move the food around on the plate, <laughs> but nobody eats a lot of food in a in a movie scene. You know, if you see Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, you know, yeah, they're talking. Maybe they'll take a little drink of coffee or something, and it will just be tea. They don't waste a lot of time eating food in a movie. Bob Aldman told me the hardest thing to shoot in terms of angles is a poker game. Five guys or six guys, and where are they looking, and what's the look, and how does it match? Are they looking at actor A or actor B or actor C? And the eye, the eye line has to be correct. They said it's hard to shoot. Thanksgiving dinner and it's hard to shoot, especially a poker game. But then you have to try to find the right angles, the right angles, Light lines they call them, eye lines. We had a great time making them. Made a lot of friends, still know a lot of them.
5: Well, I was going to ask about some of the actors that you worked with. Obviously, you'd worked with some of them before because you were talking, you know, Robert Altman likes to use his stock players, but there were some people in Popeye that I don't think he had worked with necessarily before, and I was curious.
7: It was a big cast actually were 50 actors in Popeye some of them silent without lines but he got actors from Italy because uh, Malta is near Sicily uh, it's out in the middle of the Mediterranean but the closest place is Sicily so we had some clowns that worked with Fellini we had Fellini's cinematographer uh, Giuseppe Rattuno so we're right in, very close to Italy and we had Italian the guys who made me the hamburgers were Italian we had a first AD because there's so many people from Italy, we had a second AD who spoke Italian, and I had studied Italian in, in college, and I was pretty conversant, and so I could talk to those people. We had stunt men from Italy. There's a guy, for example, that is on a ladder up against the side of a building, and, he, and it starts tipping over, and he balances it with his body. It's part of a circus act. It's like a stilt walker kind of thing. You only saw it for one moment, but he was one of the stunt men. It was um, wonderfully put together. And what's happened is everything, not only did they build that whole town, but it was sitting down low near the water. It was a cliff behind it. And on top of the cliff, there's nothing. Just just fields. So they built a, a huge studio. where they. Uh, it was almost like a basketball court just from scratch. And then they had uh, editing rooms. They had dressing rooms. They had the makeup room. And they had prop room. And all these buildings are made with huts or tin roofs. you know there must have been six or eight buildings and uh recording studio where Harry Nelson, who wrote the music was there, and he would record music and we would do it live and and we would I would have him I did one song that was cut from the movie, a wimpy song, and I had a thing in my ear called an earwig, and I could hear the music uh, I could sing along with the music in my ear to keep uh, keep the time. I didn't end. It didn't end up in a movie because the movie got to be too long. But it was a great experience and uh, ambitious. We had this big empty room. We were all there a week before. So they started having people take singing classes. These are people who could sing already. People would take dance classes. We had mirrors on the wall, like in a real studio. And then they began to have classes like uh, they had a class in Italian. Robin and I started a class of improvisation with the other actors. Some knew it, some didn't. The guy was there to teach us juggling, and he was a circus-skilled person from NYU. And he also brought in a sort of a parallel bars, and he set up a fake trapeze. He could do simple trapeze things. And it was like a college, like a our own college, a community college. And four four people formed a J- Dixieland Jazz Band. his classes all the time. After we saw the dailies, anybody who wanted to come to a class. It was, it was like living in a whole new universe.
5: I spoke with Alan Nichols recently, and he was talking about the talent shows that you guys would have in the evening time.
7: I think it was originally his idea, because he was a music guy. And he played guitar, and he, he wrote music. We did two shows just to amuse ourselves. As I say, there were 50 actors, and there were some of the Maltese, and some of the the Italians are just stunt men. Who could understand English? And the first time we did it was four hours, just for ourselves. So if you were on stage, you would just finish up your part and come out and sit in the audience. <laughs> and Robin said, "I won't. I don't want to do an act. I'll just I'll just be the MC." In the meantime, he was the MC like twenty times, <laughs> and he would. And he never stuck to it. He would come out and be an MC and doing Ed Sullivan, and they do an MC uh, being. Uh, a Maltese dialect, he'd come in to be a Frenchman. His MCs were always a different character. And at one time he came on just doing sign language to introduce the next act, but he just used it as a chance to do anything and, and everything he wanted to do. And most of the mumbling that Popeye did was improvised. A big uh, argument he always had with Altman and uh, Robin, he's saying he won't say my words. I, I spent a long time writing this. Why didn't he say what I wrote? He's telling him to stop making stuff up. Bob says, I'm not gonna tell my actors that they can't improvise. But uh, after after four months, Jules finally said, they don't need me here. (laughs) They're doing whatever they want to. And he left left the island. But in an interview I read later, he said, with all of the unhappiness I was as a writer, I think Popeye, I have to say it's very hard not to like Robert Altman. You know, he's a guy he has his own way of course when he wants to every writer has written something for him that realizes he's just going to change a lot of it he doesn't care about that he cares what's happening in the moment and if an actor has a better line than the playwright or the screenwriter he'll include it but he used to tell people an actress say I don't want to say anything that was wrong for the movies don't worry if it's not good I'll cut it out you know an actress came to him and said God I shoot my scene over that I did yesterday well, it's just, I just—I didn't like the way I, my nose looked, or something. He says, "Well, I won't use that part." Or, I didn't like the way I put my scratch my nose, or I touch my ear, or, I touch my shoulder. He says, well, "I'll take that out. I'll cut away from that and look at another actor while you're doing that." So you don't worry. She actually said, uh, "I would even pay for the day if you would." This was not Popeye. I would—I uh, even pay for it if you would redo the scene because I think I could be better. No, you're going to be fine. He talked in a very diplomatic way to her, but his thinking is, I'm not going to shoot a scene the next day because you're unhappy. I'll cut around what's uncomfortable. If it doesn't look good to me, I'll take it out. told her, I'll be on another actor while you're scratching your nose or whatever. Female actors, more than male actors, are very concerned about their makeup and their look and their hair. Most men don't give a shit. I mean, leading men might. Robert Redford, I'm a character actor. I don't care what it is. I was 49 when I did my first movie, so I was already naturally going to be a character actor. But Biden gave me a romantic lead in my second movie with them called Perfect Couple. It was a, basically like a rom-com kind of thing. I was a bit foolish, but I was the guy, the hero, who got the girl. What's so nice about him, if he likes you in a small part, he'll give you a big part. So he he's always been a fan of my acting. But when he said Jules, he always did his own casting, but he said... The Jules, it's going to be hard to find a guy to play Wimpy. When the movie was being planned, I heard that Buddy Hackett and Don DeLuise were having their agents call him about Wimpy. He said, uh, Jules said to him, use Paul Dooley, he's great. He can do anything. So he got a quote from him the other day from my book and it says, I wrote the part for Paul Dooley. Turned out to be perfect. quote that he gave for them with my back on my book. And I reached out to old friends, Alan Alda's reading it now, and he's going to give me a quote. Joe Mantegna, whom I know and worked with, uh, has read it, and he's given me a quote, and Jules and, uh, and a few other people. Um, Leonard Maltin, a film critic, has read it. And he lives in my neighborhood. And he's just came up with a book called Starstruck, which I'm reading right now. Just to give you a little preview of my, the arc of my life, I fell in love with Buster Keaton when I was 15, watching an 8 millimeter screening of a couple of his shorts. I, I idolized him all my life. wanted to be an actor because of him. And he used to make up uh, movies in high school and college, you know, with the custard pies and the canes and the derbies and the top hats and all that stuff. And then 30 years later, I meet him and get to do a commercial with him. So There's a through line in my book and a through line in my one-man show, or I talk right to the end about the influence on me of Buster Keaton. But you know, because Robin passed away and because Shelley has mental problems, uh, I'm the main person people call In the 40th anniversary of Popeye. I did 20 radio interviews and about 25 Zooms. So I'm the, the last available person from the cast of Popeye, sort of. I don't I think Ray Walson also passed away. But we were the four principals. But I've done a lot of it, and that's always very enjoyable because there's always other information that uh, I enjoy talking about because people don't know behind the scenes of Popeye very much. But it's also a little more popular now than it used to be because I get mail from people, say, I saw it when I was uh, 17. Now my kids are watching it. I have grandkids who have seen Popeye because it's kind of fun for uh, young people as well because there's so much zany kind of... uh, comic stunts, you know, people doing flips and falling over. There was a group of clowns uh, up in San Francisco called the Pickle Family Circus, and Bob hired them outright. Uh, Most uh, circuses have a clown, but they have a lot of other acts. This was a very low-budget one that traveled around and did shows outdoors, but they had three comedians and three clowns who were the stars of it, and they hired all of them who were in the... uh, and Bill Irwin was one who later became famous on his own. And he very early before people knew him, he was on SNL maybe in the second or third season. They got a little film on him out on the street walking in a way that was almost dance-like or silent movie-like. Very skillful. He's, he's uh, reminiscent of Keaton. You know, he's not too big. He's rather subtle. The kind of clown that just sticks his tongue out and waves his hands or anything. He's an artist, too. He received the MacArthur Award of $50,000 just so he could concentrate on his art, not have to work. That's that's early on after his first Broadway show. He did about three of them. I saw him about five years ago in New York, off-Broadway, doing his latest one. This was called uh, Old Hats. He had another guy named uh, David Schreiner, I think, was in it with him. And it was all clownish and all silent. I said to him afterwards, you were great. I said, I hope I, I won't let me know when you're going to do the next one. He said, I don't know these old bones. It's not the same as it used to be. <laughs> it might have been 20 years later.
5: I just had one more question for you, which was, um, can I get a refund?
7: <laughs> That's my most famous line. When that film that first came out, the truck drivers used to hang out the window seeing me on the sidewalk saying, refund, refund. <laughs> and in my family, my my wife is very funny. She's a writer, and my daughter is a writer, and have a great sense of humor. Anybody in our family says something like, uh, "Oh, that's just a reboot," or "It's just a rehash." The other person says, "Reboot, reboot, reboot!" Get this car off my lot. The other famous line that the people remember is, uh, "I don't want any any food in this house. It's Thai food." I don't want any Eni in this house. I want American food. I want french fries. And that's the best part I ever had. Better than Wimpy. They gave the billing to the four young boys who rode the bikes, but I was fifth billed. But the point is, he was almost the most important character in the movie, except for my son that played the lead biker, Dennis Christopher. But that was a great movie, and I still dine out on that movie. I meet a new director for a meeting, and he'll say, I saw, I saw breaking away in film school. You were great. So it's still my calling card. But uh, you know now that I'm 94. When the pandemic may be over someday, there may not be that many parts for a guy my age, 75. My grandpa can be 75, 65. I played grandfathers as well. But that's okay. I've done enough. I have 215 credits.
5: The other one that you were in that I grew up with was uh, Strange Brew.
7: David. Rick are improvisers from Toronto. They, they came to New York to see me. They were in New York and they happened to go to the show called Hold Me by Jules Pfeiffer. When I met them up in Toronto to do the movie, I said, how did you think of me for this? They said, well, we knew you were an improviser. I saw you do this thing that, written by Jules Pfeiffer. And I said, this guy can get laughs even without jokes. But of course Jules wrote it all. It was character humor. But I I got to meet the great Max Vencido. I asked Max, why are you doing this comedy? You you, you played God, you probably played everything. <laughs> you played the most, impo- the most important characters in the movies are always you. He says, Well, I got a script from it. I l- looked at it, it was lying on my desk. I didn't think I would do it. It was crazy, a crazy story. Then my son saw it and he said, Oh, oh my God, it's the two Canadian guys no, it's, uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie. He said, It's Bob and Doug McKenzie. You got to do it, Dad. You got to do it. (laughs) But Max Vincito was a wonderful man, but he was a little humorless. But he had a lot of power, you know. He had that kind of power that someone like Orson Welles has. He'd say to me at some point in the evening, Paul, would you like to go maybe have a cup of coffee or get a bite to eat? And to me, he sounded a little bit like Bela Lugosi because he had that kind of voice that the it was his regular voice, but it sounded very important, just as the, the Bela Lugosi was. Good evening, children of the night. He said about something about wine. He said, I never drink wine. It was the biggest ham in the world. I read once a whole story about him, and it said when he was young, he played Romeo on stage. Can you imagine? <laughs> Light through yonder window breaks, tis the east, and Juliet is the sun. I was on a radio show once for a guy. I talked about him playing Romeo. I just used that line, which is one of the first lines in the balcony scene, and I ad libbed something, so it goes like this. But light through yonder window breaks, tis Juliet, tis the east, tis the east, and Juliet is the sun. That's the. Oh no, not the sun. I got to get back to the coffin. It was always making fun of him. And in college, I formed a comedy team with a guy. And we used to make, make parodies of things. And we always loved him. He was the guy we always liked to make fun of. I once did a stage show with my partner in college. And there was a series of little bits of sketches, songs, and dances. So the curtain had come down. Somebody was singing in front of the curtain. And we brought out a fake coffin. The lights are very dim when they come up, and the coffin is on stage. And we have an alarm clock next to it. And uh, the alarm after a pause, the alarm clock goes off. And a hand comes out and turns off the alarm clock and goes back to sleep. Then I came in playing Igor. And I knocked in the coffin. I said, wake up, master, wake up. It's night. Time to get up. I was doing uh, the character of Igor, Igor from the original Frankenstein. He had a kind of a voice like that, you know. He says in a voice, go to the university. Go to the University of Strauss-Waltz, and bring me a brain. And I said, do you want mine? No, bring me a new brain, a fresh brain. I was in love with him as a target all through college and high school. (laughs) Anyway, I let you go, and you'll let me go.
5: Yeah, well, I hope we can do this again sometime. This was such a pleasure talking with you.
7: Take a year off and call me again.
5: What if I could read what's in your mind, wouldn't you say, there's a friend of mine, who wouldn't you prepare
3: yourself to pay, one who would explain the things you'd really like to say, or
1: hear like younger,
3: I could explain that
1: hunger.
5: Just a state of mind. Why I could go for days and days whilst never asking any praise. If only I could raise enough to satisfy a sea that's rough and help a stranger in his need. Help me cultivate a seed and sow the seed into my need. Everybody's got... Last but not least, we are going to hear from Coal Oil himself, Mr. McIntyre Dixon. Here he describes how he got his start in show business.
2: I was very lucky. I sort of uh, evolved into it, as probably a lot of other people did too. You know, right up through high school, I was I, I wanted to become a doctor. I was planning on becoming a doctor, but I didn't have good grades so that uh, to get into good school for that and. Uh, Also, I put it off. I I was very slow in doing that. But uh, I had, in high school, I was in the dramatic club. So we did a uh, play, a one-act play, and I received a lot of attention for that. And then I was in the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, and I did two Gilbert and Sullivan operettas because I, I played the violin, and so the music teacher like to ask, you know, musicians to be in the Gilbert Sullivan because they could handle music more. So I made a big splash for that in high school. So that was sort of behind me. Uh, um, then when I got to the college decisions, I was accepted conditionally to BU. My my grades were low enough that they, they accepted me uh, conditionally at Boston University. But nobody else wanted me. But uh, Emerson College, which is in Boston, which is, you know, become quite a school now, was, was quite easy to get into then. And it had, it had, uh, of course, drama. So I applied and was accepted by Emerson. And, um, I didn't want to take the chance on majoring in drama. I minored in drama and majored in English. I thought in the back of my mind, maybe I'll become an English teacher. But over the years, I've received enough encouragement so that, uh, after I, I went in the army after graduation, and then I went, came back to Emerson as a graduate student. I still was receiving enough recognition and appreciation to maybe th- to really think seriously of of uh, committing myself to it. So I made the big move to New York, which was the big important move. So I had I had college friends and people I knew in New York. That was very helpful to, to have that and and. And I, then it just, everything just went like magic for me, really, when I look back on it through the years. One job just led to another. I think I only, I only worked for one year. I think my first year in New York, I only worked for, for an, a job other than a the theater. I just kept making wonderful connections. I I really, really consider it extreme luck because I was not that ambitious. I didn't have much drive or. I wanted things to fall into my hands, and they did. <laughs> it was much easier then. I feel very much for actors today because it's much harder financially. Of course, you know, money's all relative from the years, you know, like from the 50s and this. But it just seems as though I could get along on very little money and could go on, you know, from job to job. And uh I was also fortunate enough during the course of time to be able to get enough commercials, which I then. Designated as my day job, so that was my my job outside the theater it was doing commercials, and commercials supported me a lot between acting jobs. That's the story for me, which was a, a very, 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 very lucky one.
5: I seem to remember reading that you wrote one called Stewed Prunes back when you were in your late twenties.
2: That was a friend of mine from college. We used to clown around in college a lot, and I said to him, like, you know, can we uh, maybe we should form a comedy team. And he said, oh, great. And we worked on that. That was one thing that didn't go smoothly. Uh, we worked on trying to work up a comedy act. And uh, it's interesting at that time because there were no comedy clubs. The big hope you had was to try and find an open mic somewhere in a, a, in a bar. You know, And we our business was to get into a bar on the weekends in the, in the Bronx or somewhere and try out our act. We just made no progress on it. So... It, it sort of went dormant for a while. And then somebody came to us and told us about a coffee house in the village. And this is when the coffee houses were making a big transition from beat poets to actual shows. People were doing little plays and uh, stand up stuff. So they mentioned this coffee house on Bleecker Street and was looking for a show. There was a connection. We had a connection. So the guy that was directing us had a connection with them. We asked somebody else from college to join us, Linda Siegel. So there were three of us originally. We just put together this little improvise. We improvised everything. We didn't really write it down. We, we improvised all the stuff that we thought was funny. And we opened in this coffee house to, you know, an audience of five or six people a night. But then a New York Times critic, just in the first week of our run, he went down to the village to write an article on the change from be poets to theater and he wandered into our show and he ended up writing the whole article about us with a picture from our show and everything and then of course we were filled up every night after that there were lines waiting to get in and that really launched us but then the club immediately got closed down by the fire department <laughs> so so we were we were in the lurch but the uh Circle of the Square on Bleecker Street at that time, producer Ted Mann had seen us and, and he also knew us and he offered it us to perform at the Circle and Square on the off nights from the show that was there. So we did Monday Monday nights and Saturday matinees. And then a club owner in the village offered us a permit job, which we did for the better part of a year. And then we went out and started doing it and, and, um, we got hired, you know, Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco and places like that and went out and did it. And, uh, Linda left us. So there's just the two of us, just, just, uh, Dick Libertini and me. The other guy was Richard Libertini who played, uh, Giesel and, and Popeye. So we were like a perfect team. I, we, we were really made for each other. It was just amazing. We thought so much alike. We could read each other's minds, you know. So we were able to do a lot. We finally broke up, uh, and uh, not officially, but it, and then we ended up, we got hired Second City, the former Second City. Paul Sills, the director of Second City, made us promise not to do any scenes together in Second City because he wanted us to be more Second City people than, than Stu Prune's people. <laughs> That's a writing credit of sorts. It
5: wasn't too much after that that you started working in television, both series and TV movies.
2: 1960 was the first we ran the show. And then 62, I was at Second City. And then, uh, yeah, I guess around 63, things started happening. I got my first Broadway show, I think it was in 1964. TV uh, and the theater all worked together. Didn't really get into films too heavily until my later years. I did an occasional movie here or there. Finally, by the time I was in my... uh, fifties maybe even our late forties i uh, started doing uh, movies more often
5: i really love some of your early film work like alice's restaurant or between time and timbuktu or fire sale which was really hard to find for a
2: lot of years yeah yeah it was alan arkin to that well i love working with alan uh i i'd known alan from second city we didn't work together at second city but i knew him from there and uh i did two plays with him and uh and that movie, and so it was great working. It was a lot of fun to work with. We had a good, really good time doing that, and because Libertini was in that too with me. We were both in that. And Timbuktu, that was the TV movie, I guess, PBS, I think.
5: Didn't Bob and Ray have roles in that?
2: Yes, yes, they did kind of a cameo in it, yes. Yeah, and it was the lead was a very interesting actor. His name I won't remember now. Very Irish name, and he was a very interesting actors in the theater. He was well-known. and uh, Yeah, it was a Kurt Vonnegut
5: story, right? What was the first time you worked with Robert Altman? Was that health?
2: Yeah, and that's where Paul Dooley Dooley introduced me to Altman. And, of course, he didn't even ask for auditions. He just just sat and talked with him for a few minutes, and and he hired me. (laughs) And, And then he liked very much what I did in health, so it got me into Popeye.
5: With Popeye, you're what, maybe 50 in that? But you look a lot older. What did they do makeup-wise to you?
2: And not too much. I think probably the costume probably helped. It was a kind of sloppy kind of costume. I had just done a film um, called Red with uh, uh, Warren Beatty. We shot it in London, and uh, there was an actor in that who was an American expatriate. who had been working for years in London as an actor, but he was American. And he had these kind of interesting bags under his eyes. And I love that. So then I asked them, uh, to give, put bags under my eyes. So that might have helped. I don't know. <laughs> Made me look older, yeah. And that was, um, Altman's, uh, right hand person. She was really, oh, Scotty. Her name was Scotty, Scotty something. So she, she supervised the costumes. I mean, she was, did everything for Altman. I don't even know who designed them actually, but but she was very much in charge. I think she might have been involved in designing the costumes. She also took care of things like my hair. There was a uh, I, I I can't remember what job he had was it a cinematographer or a uh, some kind of worker in in this previous film they had done, and he had a, a certain look to his hair, and she she wanted to image. She imitated that. <laughs> yeah, had, had them imitate that. I think it was one of the producers of one of the films that they did. Popeye was fantastic. It was and Beyond uh, Wildest Dreams. Altman had this, uh, I'm sure you've heard this from other, I don't know. Have you talked with anybody else besides uh, Paul Dooley about it?
5: Yes, I spoke with Alan Nichols.
2: Oh, yeah, Alan, gosh. Yeah, I did a movie with Alan later on. Alan directed a movie with, with uh, Meatloaf. Ryan, that's right. So, so, so he he was very much influenced by Altman. So he was as much fun to work with as Altman. But Altman had this great style of working a uh, very unobtrusive. He loved actors, and I just remember sometimes catching my eye, catching him off camera, watching us with a big grin on his face. But he created this great atmosphere because when he hired people, he hired boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives of the people in the movie. So he created a tremendous atmosphere. You know, he hired Robin Williams' wife to play a, a, a bit part, played one of the townspeople. He, t- he hired Robin Williams' roommate, I think, from college to be in it. He hired my wife, and he didn't hire my son, but he paid his way over. He was seven years old at the time. He paid his way over, but then he put him in the film. He he was played the one little kid running around. So there was this great atmosphere of a family. Uh, everybody knew, uh, you know, it's all connected. And then on top of that, he would um, show the dailies every night to everybody. He would open up the dailies, and everybody would come and watch the dailies. It was like a big party. He had, to, you know, you had a open bar and all kinds of food, which was a great thing because if you if you weren't in the scene that day, you saw what was going on, you know. So it gave you more of a feeling of continuity. You had this tremendous feeling of continuity because you saw the scenes that you weren't in. Then afterwards, he would always show one of his films. (laughs) He was just great. He was uh, he was so tremendous. My son was seven years old, and he got into a fight. And of course, because they said they brought a lot of family, there were a lot of people there with kids, you know. There there must have been 20 or so kids, maybe more. And they all... Hooked up a special school for them. My, my, uh, son went to a English, English school. You know, uh, uh Malta was under England for so many years. They still had this English style school. So my son got into a fight one day with one of the kids and he was in the, in the dining hall and he was crying. And Altman saw him and he picked him up in his lap and he said, you know, I want to thank you for being in my film. <laughs> he said, oh, <laughs>
3: yeah.
5: What do you remember about the talent shows?
2: There was the guy that played uh, my son, Donovan Scott. He played um, Castor Oil, yeah. And he was a big party guy and a game guy. He was wonderful. He, had, he brought all kinds of games over with him there. And we would play games at his place. And he organized this talent show. And if I remember right, it ran four hours. And Robin was the MC. So he introduced everything, but he did shtick in between. Then Libertini and I did our stoop prunes and went over so well that we did it again. Second time. I don't know if it ran four hours the second time. But then um, Robert Evans, the producer, came over to see what, you know, to oversee the shooting. And he was there for our talent show. So when the movie premiered in Hollywood, he hired of us, of us all to come and do the talent show at the party afterwards. Uh, it was at Grauman's uh, Theater, and, and it was the back of the theater. They set up tables and chairs and uh, hundreds of people. I don't know how many there were, maybe a couple of hundred. I don't know. And uh, they were all there, um, and we did our talent show, but nobody wanted, paid attention to us. They all just kept talking while we were on performing, except when Robin came on. When Robin came on, they became silent. So Rob, Robin Evans got so annoyed he stopped the show. He canceled it. He was he was really really annoyed that people weren't paying attention.
5: How did you memorize all of that dialogue that you have in Popeye?
2: Oh, it wasn't that much. That was pretty. That was pretty easy. I'm
5: so sorry. I'm giving you a hard time because I think you have variations on just one line for the most of what you say.
2: Oh, oh, you were, oh, you were joking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, you owe me an apology. Whenever I call Paul Dooley or he calls me, he always begins with that line. You owe me an apology. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, not much to say. That was easy, yeah. <laughs>
5: From what I understand, at a certain point, a lot of the cast went home, but you and the rest of the oil family, Wimpy, Popeye, Bluto, you guys stuck around for the climax of the film.
2: Yeah, the bulk of the company was there for four months, and and then we stayed on for two more months. But they were through with the uh, so yeah so the the last couple of months just entailed us chasing Pluto in the boat and arrive arriving on the island where the octopus was and uh, so and we kept getting delayed because of the change of the seasons they get a tremendous winds growing across growing across Africa and into Europe and uh, so we couldn't go we couldn't go on the sea when it was rough uh, and we couldn't use the but the time when they had the uh, The big boxing match, that was on a boat. They had to put that off, too, because uh, the water was so rough. So I think we went one time, I think we went 11 days without shooting. Yeah, we all just did whatever we could do to pass the time.
5: It feels like a lot of the stuff that you shot on the water could have gotten really grueling really fast.
2: No, it wasn't. It was fun. It was fun. The main thing is that they kept warning us that when they sank the ship, We were all in. uh, We all had uh, wetsuits under our costumes. They sank the ship. They had, I think, an assigned a crew member to each one of us to be standing by. And so they were all in the water too, out of camera shot. They kept warning us, uh, "Well, we're going to sink the ship, and we're in stages, (laughs) such and
7: such a stage."
2: But somehow. Something might have gone wrong. I don't know, but the ship sank much faster than we thought it was going to. It sort of went down like a, a lead weight. <laughs> Never done a film with less pressure, you know. Yeah, I mean, there was no pressure at all. It's kind of a uh, backwards favorite moment. I don't know uh, when we were when uh, Pluto destroyed the uh, oil house. He, we had this song. He's mean. He's mean. You know what I mean. Um, he started out singing "I'm Mean, I'm Mean," and then we sang. So the Oil Family and Diesel and Wimpy, we were standing in a group singing, and it was interesting that they, all the singing was done on camera; none of none of it was re recorded And very often we were taught the stuff at the last minute. We had to learn it very fast, and that was especially true of the big number we did in the in the Rough House. Uh, the cafe, uh, everything is food, food, food. The song we sang about food. That, they just gave it to us that morning and we just to, to quickly learned it. So that, that worked out all right. But in the oil house, when we were singing, we were singing in a group and then there's a, there was a, a quick break between notes and words and Libertini, Giesel, jumped in by mistake. He sang by mistake and he tried to cover up and he did his kind of diesel laugh. I don't know. It was sort of, Oh, oh, oh something like that. And for some unbelievable reason, I don't know whether it was a stress or what I look completely lost control. And I started laughing and I was just laughing uncontrollably. Altman kept the camera running. And I thought, my God, I'm laughing and laughing. And this is costing thousands of dollars. <laughs> and, uh, that was a trait of his. He wasn't able to use that, but uh very often he used things. Very often he chose things that went wrong or didn't go quite right, and he was able to use them. Yeah, but I don't know. That was in a strange way. That was kind of a, a favorite moment of mine. I somehow enjoyed laughing that much, and it and it, it was struck me funny. And they showed it in the dailies. We watched watched me, right? and what happened is it, it caught on. And I, I think my my wife. Um, Nana Oil, and, and I think Wimpy, I think uh, Paul Dooley, I think they started laughing, too, I think. Yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the choreography for that food song is great.
2: Yeah, it was, and it was done very fast, too. It wasn't too much rehearsal. All men, I think, like very often to shoot the rehearsal, you know.
5: You played Doctors in two things I really like, the Dream Team and the episode of Monsters called New York Honey.
2: Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. Me and Lou Stadlin. yeah. Lou Stadlin was got eaten up by my wife, and uh, played a psychiatrist in Dream Team. Dream Team was a wonderful movie. Yeah, they were wonderful. They were very, they were very funny. Except for uh, Christopher Lloyd, he, he uh, the little I was around him, he was very serious. But Peter Boyle and Michael Keaton were clowning around and uh, joking. And um, but he was, he, I remember him being very very serious.
5: Looking at your work, it feels like you bounce back and forth between film and theater a lot. Were you in a different production every single year?
2: Yeah, it's true. I was, and uh, my income, as I remember, was pretty much balanced. It was pretty much equal. Of course, I would have to work many more weeks in the theater for the same income. I worked for a few days in a film, but uh, yeah, I did. That's that's one way. I was very lucky. Yeah.
5: We talked a little bit about Alan Arkham before, and you were in a production of Little Murders, which I know he directed for the screen. What role did you play in the stage version?
2: I played uh, the father. Alan also directed the original production on stage, and it was really, really brilliantly done. see if I can remember his name. Uh, Wonderful actor. Wonderful actor played the father in that
5: production. Oh, was that Vincent Gardenia?
2: That was him. He played it on stage, too. Yeah. And I was very intimidated because I thought he was so brilliant in that part. And uh, I mentioned to Jules Pfeiffer how intimidated I was, and everything. And he says, "Yeah, yeah, he, he reinvented the part." He said, "Because <laughs> he he wasn't really right for it technically, but he he made it his own." And really, yeah, he was really wonderful. I'm trying to remember some of this. I can't remember some of the other people that did it with me. But yeah, Linda Lavin was in the original. Yeah, I'm glad they made a film of it. Uh, I think the film was as good as it was. Now it's funny. I- I'm remembering as someone who played the son in it. And he played the son in the in the movie. John Corkus, I think his name is. What I heard about him is interesting. Is he got that part because he helped as a reader in the auditions, and he was just brought in to be a reader. And they just they they decided to use him. Yeah.
5: Over the years, what have been some of your favorite parts to play?
2: The last role I did in New York uh, was in the Fantastics. I did for eight years, off and on. They, they, it was great, a great job, because they would let me out to do other things. I would go get out, all short-term things. So I went. I got out to do Shakespeare in the Park. And then I got out to do, it, do a play at the Huntington in Boston. And then I got uh, to do um, a play that my wife had written. And my son had added music to it, and we did that in, at the uh, Edinburgh Festival, so that that was great. But the, I don't know. My favorite things were not in New York. Strangely enough, one was in Princeton uh, at the MacArthur, and it was a play called *Eminent Domain*. Wonderful, wonderful play written by uh, uh, an actor named Percy Granger, same as the compo- same as the composer, but a different spelling. It went to Broadway, I went to Circle of Square, and Phil Bosco did my part. So being, being one of my favorite things to do was also one of my great, great disappointments, uh, in it, because I thought I, I, as good as Phil Bosco is, I thought it was much better for the part, and I brought more to it, uh, but I didn't get to see him in it, so I can't c- claim that. The other, the other was a, um, a musical, um, um, based on, uh, it was, it, was, it was called the uh, Baker's Wife. It was a wonderful musical that had an unfortunate three Broadway run years ago. It, it, it ran for ten months off, uh, uh, on tour. It had
3: uh,
2: a, a just unfortunate circumstances sabotaged it. They weren't able to, to get it and didn't get to, it. It did get to Broadway, but it I think it did get to Broadway and it flopped. It was with with uh, Patty Lapone was in it. And Topol, Topol played the baker, and it was based on an old French film. But Topol was the one who sabotaged it, as I understand it. He he was just too difficult, and, and he didn't like Patti LuPone, which is unfortunate because that's the romance. The composer whose name I cannot remember now, I should remember, a very famous composer, wrote he wrote Pippin, he wrote Wicked. Uh, I know I'll think of his name after i
5: Is it Schwartz?
2: now I can't remember his first was his first name <laughs> Stephen yeah well Stephen um, I was kind of a last minute choice for it. so he, um, so I actually auditioned Steve Sch- 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 Schwartz and um, we did it at uh, a theater out in uh, Illinois just outside Chicago and so that was very 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 rewarding one to do. Those are the two two main shows I can think of. I did the show. My wife uh, ran ran a small theater in New York over the years, which I helped her with. And it was really basically a showcase theater. It was um, no money involved or anything, but it was just the sake of doing good shows. We did *The Affairs of Anatole* by Schnitzler, and uh, so that stands out in my head as a uh, very enjoyable because. Um, I got to play opposite, uh, five or six women. I don't know. Each scene was a different affair, a different woman. So, so it was kind of a feast of, uh, romantic playing with, uh, five or six women in each different scene. Yeah. So, yeah. A wonderful, uh, witty show. So I, I think those are the three main things. I love doing Cyrano with Kevin Klein and, and also Hamlet with him. I, I played the Gravedigger in Hamlet. So I did, I did several things. With,
3: uh,
2: I did two movies with Kevin Klein, and three plays with him. Yeah, yeah. I
5: remember In and Out, but I'm trying to remember the other one.
2: Yeah, In and Out. I was kind of a glorified extra in it. I didn't have any lines or such, except ad libs that were sort of in them. But uh, but uh, more, more people spotted me in that movie than some of the movies where I had more to do. Yeah, the other, uh, well, the other movie I was cut out of, so that's why you don't remember it. Yeah, it was it was called I Love You to Death. And uh, Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my scene was cut and the uh, director was very apologetic when he told me. He was very. They had to they had to change the ending of the movie and I was involved in the ending. They had tried it out, you know, with audiences and uh they they were getting some bad reactions about the ending so they they uh yeah, they changed it. What are you up to these days? I'm here in Oregon. I fled the The pandemic, I was previously, my son has been here in Oregon for four years now, and his husband uh, got hired to teach viola in the University of Oregon, and my son's a violinist and a, a composer, so they moved out here, and then I spent several visits the first year or so, coming out here on several visits, and then when the pandemic came, he said, I think you should come out here right away, so I came out little knowing and I would be already now over two years here. <laughs> so I have this empty apartment back in New York. And um, what I'm doing mainly with, I'm doing great projects with him. Over the years, I've done quite a few of these projects. He writes pieces for music and narrator. And uh, some he's adapted and some he's actually written originally. But so we started out with uh, The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde. And that was for violin and viola. And then we went to, to some other things. We expanded to a string trio and a narrator. We did uh, one of the tales from Canterbury, uh, Canterbury Tales. And that was with a sextet, a, a string quartet, piano, and a bassoon. Then he wrote an original piece. I mean, it was originally, his writing of it was original. It was based on uh, Daedalus and Icarus. You know, Icarus, Icarus Who Flies Too Close to the Sun. And and uh, that was a beautiful piece. He wrote that, that was for a string quartet. And he uh, over and over, he's done this thing. And I think I told you that, oh, uh, I haven't done it on here, but one of the things he wrote was that play my wife wrote, and he made himself, it's a two-character play. I played the devil visiting this terrorist on the eve of the uh, terrorist act he's going to commit. So he played the young terrorist and the uh, and viola and violin. So it would break into music all through the play uh, with violin and, and viola. And his partner uh, played the devil. We made him the devil's assistant. He had no lines. And it, it, we added him so he could play the viola and they would play the music. So he's kept me pretty busy. We're, we're doing a project next month. We're we're going to do uh, part of the, that play about the devil and the terrorists. And it's it's going to be in the same program with two uh, amazing, amazing singers, baritone and soprano. He's he's adapted some uh, famous, well, some famous, not all famous quotes and great sayings about peace by famous people. And uh, they're going to sing, they are all set to music. They're going to sing them. So it's going to be, part of the program. The other part is going to be the devil and the and the terrorist.
5: <laughs> Mr. Dixon, thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure talking with you.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. I enjoyed reminiscing. It was fun.
5: All right, we are back and we are talking about Popeye. I don't have a whole lot more to say, though I was wondering today, what would a sequel have been like? I kind of wish that there had been one because I would have loved to have seen like Alice the Goon and the Sea Hag in there. Yeah, it would have been fun
4: to see some of the uh, the islands that uh that uh the during the um the later years they they kind of populated them with like you like you said the goons. My god, like uh, and uh, imagine they could do that now. I I I shudder to think in like 1982 what the goons might have looked like unless unless the Henson corporation was involved.
1: You could do the old thing where remember like after um MASH the TV show they did something called After MASH where none of the leads were in it anymore. So you could have some of the supporting characters carrying it. I take that back because the supporting characters were so good. I'd watch that in a minute.
5: Got a fake documentary about the lives of the Sweet Haven residents,
1: a
4: la The Office. And Richard Libertini as Giesel. Oh my goodness. So good.
5: I was so glad to hear how Libertini had worked with uh, Dixon and uh, Dooley. So just some of those stories. I was so glad to talk with those guys.
4: And, and again, given like what, like one real scene, Richard Libertini, like he's at the dinner scene as well, but just that in- interaction with Pompei at the beginning, like burned into my consciousness. Pluto. Not so much. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Are we aware of any behind the scenes documentary? I mean, like EPK stuff or anything from that. I've never seen anything.
5: There's just a lot of photos. I haven't seen any real footage from behind the scenes. Which is crazy because you gotta figure everyone had like a you know an
4: eight millimeter camera, sixteen you know just like home movie stuff. Like where's all of that?
1: Guess it was just straight up banned. Don't you dare take out a camera.
5: He definitely does have a lot of photos taken while he's making movies. Like the stuff that I looked at for the Long Goodbye, there were just he would actually distribute photo albums to people that worked on the movie and it would have their name engraved. So like. To you know, Elliot from Bob, and then the whole, all these behind-the-scenes photos. So there were a ton of behind-the-scenes photos, but most of them are actually on the Blu-ray, so you can see almost all of that. Like the the striking image of all of these Popeye arms going across a table, and then two Robin Williams heads next to them. <laughs> it's like oh,
4: nightmare fuel. I gotta get that.
5: It's a good Blu-ray, and it's only 10 bucks on Amazon, so very cheap. Can't go wrong. Yeah, and it's got the little behind-the-scenes thing. It's got a little bit, I think, about the the behind-the-scenes, the the, um, extras.
4: Does it have the I Am When I Am video? I mean, the original trailer?
5: (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think it does.
4: You remember the trailer for, for for the movie? It's it's just that sequence, basically, like uh, like the "I am what I am" scene. Yeah,
5: I was trying to find radio ads for this. I, this was still of the era of radio ads, but there was nothing that I could find. This is a woeful situation.
4: <laughs> you would you would think that, that that someone would throw a little bit more behind this movie, like at least to get the IP going again. You know. It's so funny, though, that everyone's saying that, like, oh, it's IPs now. It's so all anyone who's interested in it. But this is, as you pointed out at the beginning, like, kind of the same thing. Like, Robert Evans going, I want Little Orphan Annie. You can't have it. but Houston's got it. Like, what else? What other comic strips are available? Like, well, you just came from Paramount. They own Popeye. Give me that one.
5: There was confusion around who actually owned the copyright to popeye because somebody was distributing it on tv but then they realized that paramount actually owned king pictures at one point
4: yeah and i think early on in the run of the comics like there was uh there was a sw- there was a handoff when it when i think it went to king king features and they were concerned that the word the name Bluto was not copywritten originally so that he became brutus for a few years and then they found out like no you still own the rights to the name Bluto, and then he slowly became Bluto again
5: <laughs> did not know that old
4: bruce
1: brutus thing
4: Yeah, I think from like 1960 to 62, Bluto became
1: Brutus. For people that don't like Altman films, I get it. I love them. But you can't argue like, you know, The Godfather, Jaws, Cuckoo's Nest or something that like, you need to watch it again. You don't get it. You know, maybe Chinatown seems a little slow, but it's a straight up classic. Altman stuff, it's fun. Either you get it or you don't get it. And if you don't, no hard feelings.
5: I'm very hit or miss with Altman. I think he's very hit or miss. And then I'm hit or miss with him some of the ones that people love. I'm just like, eh. And then others, I'm just like, no, I really, really like this one. You know, I I'm the long goodbye, of course, everybody should like it, but that's one that I like more than Nashville, definitely. I wasn't a big Nashville guy.
1: Oh, I love Nashville to death, but I love Long Goodbye. When I was able to do a phoner with Altman, um we did the thing of I did two. And the second one, I just looked at his IMDb and would name a film and say, you know, first thing that comes into your mind. And uh, I was curious about a couple of things. The ending of Nashville has this weird, I don't want to get too far off track, but it's got this weird thing where the movie's ending and they start to track up to the sky and pass the American flag. And then they suddenly cut back to two cops walking by and then they finish the pan up into the sky. So I got to actually ask him all those years later, what did it mean? He goes, I don't remember. So then he said make uh bill and the indians it was 76 so it was going to be a bicentennial movie and he was quoted as saying i just want to give america a swift kick in the ass i said you think you did and he said i don't remember saying that <laughs> <laughs> the other one i remember was when we got to quintet i couldn't resist bringing up how much it was hated and the paul newman story he goes yeah quintet you go, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. And it's funny now, because I see on Facebook, some people are real fans of it, and they stick up for it. And it's like, no, nah, I don't think
5: so. I really tried a few years ago, and I was like, okay, I'm really going to give this a wide berth.
4: <jal views> yeah. Yeah, those people you're referring to are called apologists. Uh, Mike, I'm with you as far as Altman's output, but I, you know, it points to his his style of experimentation, like some are going to be good. Some are going to be bad. I mean, to me, the ones that seem based on previous material that was either densely plotted or had a, a singular through line work for me better than his others. Like for me, like I said, the player is, is a great film. I think the long goodbye is as perfect an adaptation of a Raymond Chandler novel as you could possibly get. Like his style meshes so beautifully with, with, with Chandler's. And, uh, and I think Raymond Carver's, uh, work like, you know, shortcuts, like you could not have asked for a better, uh, adaptation of, uh, uh of Raymond Carver. Like those are the ones that stick out for me. Most uh, Nashville is good. i uh, you know, I, I, I don't relate to it as much as, uh, as the other ones, but, but my God, long goodbye is fantastic. And I got to say Popeye too, for whatever weird reason, like the, you know, again, like it all comes together, his sort of style with the sort of previous material just kind of blends and makes his movies more palatable to me. But I, you know, I, I love a good hangout movie too. So like, it's not like I don't enjoy those movies. It's just that I don't want to rewatch them that much.
1: Well, maybe it's because he'd done so much TV that when he finally got to go nuts on the big screen, his stuff really suffered when it went back to the small screen. Like I remember Popeye used to be an incredibly shitty VHS tape and I seen a good print of it till this HD one finally, but so many of his films, you know like nashville is fine at home on the big screen with an audience it's a whole nother thing even little subdued things like thieves like us look kind of murky and grainy on tv forever and in the theater you know it's great of course now with hd these work better like the, the hd of uh thieves like us works a lot better because he was you know loath to do too many close-ups and that sort of thing so now you can spot all the detail and it's there so Hopefully, some people will give it an, give him another chance. But um, then you get something like Predator. Did you ever see that? Mm.
3: Woo-hoo. Yeah.
1: Woo. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Woo-hoo. When you got a romp run- beyond therapy with Jeff Goldblum. Woo woo. Oh my God!
5: Yeah, I forgot that one. Doctor T and the women.
1: I went to the Doctor T party. Where was it? That
5: was Did you he- have some tea? Did you get drunk. tea bagged?
1: <laughs> but he was there and he was drunk. It's the only time I ever met him at a party where he was full on hammered. Altman or Gear? <laughs> you know what? I don't think Gear was there, but Altman was. I remember um, Farrah Fawcett was there. She's not in the movie, though, is she?
4: No, but, but Ryan O'Neill?
1: I don't know. <laughs> There's got to be some connection there. And then when he went back to TV a bit, uh, you know what's an obscure one, which is really good, is his version of the Kane Mutiny
5: court-martial. Oh, I've been meaning to see that.
1: Done in for, for TV in, I think,
5: 88. And there's another Michigan connection to that, I think. Oh, I'm not sure that it was. Um, oh, Jeff Fr- Daniels is in it. That's why. The critical part, the
1: asshole. And then uh, uh, what's his name for Midnight Express, the lead? Brad, Brad Davis. He's a uh, the Humphrey Bogart part. And it's one of the better ones of this is obviously from a play, but I'm not feeling all you know claustrophobic. It's another movie where he does a lot with rain. There's a big thing during the climax of the play where they're cutting to the rain on the windows and all this other stuff. Because there's rain in, you know, McCabe, certainly. There's even rain in the beginning of Papa. Because he loved... You've seen the Fellini film, I Vitalini? That's got a tr- very cool party scene where it's interrupted by rain. Altman said that was one of his favorite scenes. And it was like, no kidding. He's got rain in, like, the company. The one about, you know, dance. He's got rain and at least... Eight of his films. There's even Rain is a big thing and um Dr. T and the Women. <laughs> Don't get me started on Rain. Or Dr. T and the Women, for that matter.
5: Yeah, I've been very fortunate to see a lot of Altman on the big screen. uh There were screenings at the Detroit Film Theater for McCabe, for Nashville. I think I even got to see Five and Dime, Jimmy, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Mm. They showed that at uh, the Michigan Theater a few years ago. I love that movie. I haven't thought about that movie in years.
1: It's funny because he did not come from a theater background. You know, he did commercials in Kansas, and then he went right into movies and TV shows. And when he started doing all those plays in the 80s, they were like, oh, are you are getting back to your roots? He's like, well, I've never done one. And then we've never done one. And then even when he did the company, well, I've never I don't know anything about dance.
4: I just I just read an interview about Popeye where he said that he was like, well, the fact is, I've never done anything like Popeye before.
1: Okay, it's a good way to live, a good way to to work. That's why that one book is called Jumping Off the Cliff, yeah.
5: All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
4: We're about to enter a potential battle zone.
5: If you like Monty Python,
1: you'll love this hilarious British comedy. Welcome to
0: Jack
1: a world of outlandish terrorists.
0: Or oh, any questions? Where do babies come from?
1: Lunatic leaders.
7: We would sell our grandmothers
0: for such a man. And
1: governments gone haywire. What could possibly
5: go wrong? Fire! Whoops. Apocalypse.
3: Compared to you, most people have the IQ of a carrot. We're different than most people, Mitch. Better. I've decided to put you on my own research team with some of the finest
5: minds on the campus. You're going to be working with Chris. He's a senior now, and he's as brilliant as he ever was. Welcome to
0: Pacific Tech, smart people on ice. What's all this supposed to be?
4: This? This is ice. This is what happens to
0: water when it gets too cold. This? This is Ken. This is what happens to people when they get too sexually
4: frustrated. I'm Chris Knight. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Look, it's about our deal. To graduate, you need my course, dear boy. I have advanced your project more than any three students on campus. What exactly do you want? I want five megawatts
0: by mid-May. So from now on, you and Mitch are going to spend every waking moment in the lab. In modern-day America, the corporations run our lives. But one man is prepared to take our country back.
3: Poodie
0: Tang! it, Hi! This summer, meet a superhero like no other.
6: Poodie Tang's one bad brother, man. a Tang whip your butt so bad, that you can write it off on your taxes.
2: That I think. Since the inception of Pootie Tang's ad campaign, sales are down thirty percent. He steals from me. I want him dead.
0: Get that Pootie! Man, Pootie, done did it again. Paramount Pictures presents in association with MTV Films and Chris Rock Productions.
5: We got Pootie Tang in the house tonight.
0: A man too cool for words.
5: So let's listen up to the new record by Putin Tank. Turn that noise down. Put it don't need no words. Don't even need no music.
2: You can set my body ablaze.
4: You skinny, wonderful man. Lance
0: Crowther,
3: <laughs> Wanda Sykes.
2: Give me some
4: more of your juicy neck bone one more time. And Chris Rock. Daddy? you damn right on your daddy. Pootie Tag. You are my son God I say.
5: What would you say if someone offered you peace and happiness through
4: all of eternity? Have a nice day. Meet Joe Young.
0: Hi. He's a man on a mission.
1: Lisa wants to get married in the temple, but I don't think I can afford it. Who just got an offer. Have you ever considered acting? I got offered a part in a movie, and it pays (coughs) $20,000. He couldn't refuse. What are you acting in?
0: It's uh, uh, an action, adventure, porno. Porno? But when things get out of control. I can't believe I'm doing this. He can't get out. You're gonna finish this film.
4: You don't own me!
0: You wanna bet I don't punk!
7: Without a fight.
0: Ah! Heck! Criminy!
7: Now, he's becoming the superhero. Ah.
0: Bye-bye. God bless. He was always meant to be. I'm Orgasmo.
5: Gasmo.
3: Did someone say
5: my name? That's right. We are going to talk about one of those movies you just heard a preview for next week. I'm not quite sure yet, so be ready for a surprise. Until then, I want to thank my co host for this week, Paul and Father Malone. Paul, what is up with you, sir?
1: After 27 years in the wilderness in LA, we're back in Michigan. And I'm working on a couple of secret projects. And during COVID, I took my book from almost 10 years ago, uh, Virgin Noir. And I originally was going to do a second volume. And I decided to just fold it into the existing one. So I added Jeff Furzig, who directed the Daniel Johnston movie that was so good. Lee Tamahori from New Zealand. Terry Zwigoff from Crumb, of course. And Harmony Kareen, who's never boring. And I put those into a, a new edition. And it's not actually out yet. I actually did a, a mock-up one, and it was uh, a couple lunatics in L.A. that wanted to option it. So rather than printing the whole book, I did what is really a glorified Xerox. Right on. Yeah, so I'm putting that together into some other fashion now because, you know, COVID made us stir-crazy. We do silly things. So, yeah, I'm working on some other stuff that I can't really announce yet, but
5: I'm back. He's back, baby. <laughs> and Father Malone, how about yourself? Check me out over at
4: fathermalone.com. Uh, the latest thing I'm doing is uh, uh, my buddy HP and I do a, a video podcast called Wolf and Raisin, the Banachek podcast. Where we look at uh, George Pappard's uh, detective series from the early 1970s. And uh, at fathermalone.com, you can also find Dark Destinations, which is my half hour radio drama that I uh, write and produce. Hit me up over there.
1: Banachek, very cool.
4: Yes. Oh, it is. It, it is so much better than I remembered
5: it. You had the hair. The hair. Oh, my
4: God. Yes. I, in, we, I told you we do. A, it's a video podcast. I actually have a Caesar wig that I wear with the with a turtleneck and the blazer for for it. And my my uh, my co-host also dresses as George. Do consider doing
1: Wall Street next?
5: Keep that ball rolling. I thought you were going to go Heck Ramsey next. Stay on the wheel yeah exactly the wheel is
4: everything all roads lead to the wheel we're all on that wheel the good times like the bad are forever passing away
5: well thank you so much guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world
0: Once in life, I finally felt that someone needed